Hello, everyone, and welcome to Movie Change Up, the Impossible Movie Remake Show. My name is Johnny Dupe. I am your champion and your host uh, today. Um, we have an episode of Forgotten Movies. We are returning back to it. We haven't done it in a long time. Um, but we have a few different formatting uh, changes that uh, we're excited to to uh, test out today and uh, hopefully uh, you know use going forward. But for those of you who don't know our show, our contestants will be pitching um, from a list of seven different movies and facing each other. And Tristan, uh, my co-host, and I will be uh, deciding who wins as judges uh, of each round, first to four wins. Um, it's exciting to uh, return to this format and uh, to see if we can get some more traction on it. If you are watching this video, please like and subscribe on uh, on YouTube and please uh, give us five-star reviews on any of your favorite podcast apps. It would be great. But before we get to what movies and everything we're doing today, I will let my co-judge introduce himself. It's good to be here, Johnny. I do love the Forgotten Movies. We've done these before. It's pretty fun to dig these up. Uh, some of these are very hard to find. You know, I had to dig through the, the dark webs and go through all the illegal, you know, heroin trading to find some of these movies. But, you know, if you dig there, you can find them. I promise you. So go ahead and do a Google search, see what you can find on these. And Johnny mentioned he's a champion. And I'm surprised he's not showing off his belt right now. But are you though? Is, there he's got it right there. You know, he spent a lot of money on that belt. And I want you guys to spend money on podcast too. So I'm introducing the first movie change up t-shirt. <laughs> wow. Wow. It says pretty blunt to the point, you know, Johnny sucks. If you want to be reminded why it just says bad take. Johnny sucks <laughs> is a bad take. I agree. So anytime, I think he fucked up over there. <laughs> anytime they mention uh oh you got one minute, you can't interrupt Johnny. I can just point and go, bad take. You don't even gotta explain. Johnny says something stupid, he goes, Oh, Edgar Wright's bad. Oh, baby Wright's bad. Sucks. Bad take. And I'll just hold this baby up forever. Sure, you can win. You can steal as many wins as you want, Joe. Or Johnny. Yeah, <laughs> and Joe. Joe says for you, obviously. <laughs> but look, it's a perfect reminder. No matter what's happening, no matter what episode it is, me and Johnny are coworkers right now. We're we're working together to make this happen, but still. Don't worry. No no bias at all between the judges here. No animosity at all with that bold bolded shirt. But yeah, you know. I like that it says bad take underneath because we agree. Johnny sucks. Bad take. Um, Bobby, do you have any uh, exciting uh, shirts or heroin references you'd like to make? Um, I mean, I you know I was browsing the dark web for heroin earlier because I'm <laughs> sure that's a, a thing. But uh, no, I am wearing a shirt I've worn probably a million times in this podcast. But uh, um, yeah, I'm excited for the show. Um, Forgotten movies is fun. It's it's definitely interesting to look at movies that not a lot of people know about. But um, I think I made some of them fun because I found some of the stories boring. So, I mean, I think I'm either going to go uh, seven or zero, well four zero with a new format, or I'm going to go zero and four and be swept out of the building. So, I like my take. I like my pitches. I think they're good takes. Unlike Tristan's shirt, like what what his shirt says. I mean, uh, so there you go. Uh, so I hope you guys agree. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we will see. Um, Joe, are you intimidated by Bobby's uh, not very aggressive uh, attitude going into this? I've, I've never been intimidated a day in my life. 
You know, I just ride how I, you know, I just go how I go, man. Go with the breeze. Never been intimidated. But I don't know if I'm out there intimidating people. As far as shirts go, we got 4th of July in a couple days. So I wanted to wear my Abraham Lincoln America shirt that says America. You know, because who doesn't love Abraham Lincoln? So, yeah. The shirt I'm shot him, but I can't think of his name. <laughs> John Wilkes Booth. Yeah, John Wilkes Booth. That would have been a better joke if I could have thought of it. Yeah. Um, all right, so I, I will just uh, end on this too, Joe. We are making a few changes in the format, and we all kind of uh, talked about this, but I think you have a good grasp on uh, explaining that. So explain what our new format for the episode and the fights will be today. All right, so we've you know received complaints from people – I don't want to say complaints, more suggestions, I think. And one of the problems people have had with getting into the podcast is they see like a two and a half hour runtime. And kind of like we've talked about intimidating, that can be intimidating to a new viewer. So we want to cut down on that. So the first thing, instead of doing this whole repeat a rule and stuff like that, that we've done before in the past, uh, we're doing an official best of seven. You win four pitches. That's it. Episode over. Have a great night. I think number one that'll cut down on episode length because our uh, we'll probably only have uh, five or six pitches instead of seven. And then another thing too is we've kind of had like a five minute free for all in fighting back and forth once we've done our pitches. And I think as someone who's timed those, a lot of times that can run into like six, seven, eight minutes. And so uh, instead of having just a five minute free for all where everyone's talking over each other. And having uh, just a lot of nonsense, we wanted to have more of a structured debate. So whoever pitches first will then, after both pitches have been uh, read, uh, they will have one minute to attack the other person's pitch. And then that the second person will have one minute to attack the other person's pitch. And then we will go into each person will have two minutes to either further attack or defend or both for their pitches. So it's one minute. So each person will have one minute to attack and then two minutes to attack or defend whatever they would like to do. All right. Well, there we go. So with that being said, we'll just uh, we'll kick it off. We'll get into it. Um, I will read what movies that we're doing today. And Tristan, if you have the rules handy, you can read uh, the rules. So anyone who has not seen us obviously fight uh, before, uh, the contestants have a list of seven movies, seven rules. They need to use one rule per um per fight uh, and per movie, just like always, the formatting doesn't change what the uh, you know basis is on that. So today we are going with forgotten movies, so movies that people out there might not have heard of, probably haven't seen. Maybe there's a few hardcore hardcore fans out there though, like us that uh, that know these that know these ones, or some dark web searchers like Bobby and Tristan. Um, so we're starting off today. First, I'll just read off. Uh, we have The Bone Wars from 1993. We have Metroid from 2001. We have The Woodpecker from 1972. We have They're Great, The Frosted Flake Story from 2002. Great. We have Cryptid Hunters from 2013. Flaming Hots from 1940. And the all but forgotten Crash Bandicoot, the movie from 1998. So those are our films. Tristan, what are the seven rules our contestants must, must use today? Yeah, like Johnny said, there's seven rules, and they have to match one of these, each of the movies that they're pitching. So here are the seven rules for the episode. The first one is turn one into a miniseries. We've seen plenty of great miniseries recently, so it's probably a good one to pick. One must put an actor on the map. 
Make one a foreign film. I feel like that's a staple whenever Johnny's judging. What must be if character made famous by Nicolas Cage? I feel like that's a staple whenever me and Johnny are both judging. Nicolas <laughs> <laughs> Cage is the perfect combination. What must be cast and released as a 1980s movie? So you pick a year in the 80s and you have to use a cast and a crew and a director that'll all be uh, part of, all be part of that year in film. You must use the cast of a sitcom. So you pick a sitcom and your entire cast must be from the cast of that sitcom. And what must be directed by the auteur in the darling Paul Thomas Anderson. Exactly. All right. And Bobby won our little com uh, contest before the episode starts. And with the new format, I think it becomes all the more important what movies you're, you're choosing. So Bobby, where are we starting and who's going first? Uh, we're going to start with the classic, uh, the woodpecker. Um, and I'll go first on it. Perfect. All right. For anyone who doesn't know the woodpecker, came out in 1972. It got a 38% of Rotten Tomatoes. It was directed by Sam, the great Sam Peckinpah. Um, this murder mystery tells the story of Detective Ace Springer, played by Charlton, Charleston Heston, uh, who is on the search for a serial killer nicknamed the Woodpecker uh, for carving messages in trees where his victims are found. A lot of information there. Um, so, Bobby, uh, you said, who's going first? I'm sorry. I'm going to go first. Uh, All right. So yeah, I'll, I'll give my pitch and then so just to be clear in the format, though, is it so I pitch, then Joe pitches, then we go into yeah, our attacks. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah, right, you can't so. really attack right. mine if you don't know shit about right. mine. So Perfect. <laughs> just want to be clear. Um, so to get I started, could. the rule I chose is that I'm making this a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, I think I could pull that off well with the, the kind of story I wanted to go for. The woodpecker himself is going to be played by Joaquin Phoenix, who has worked with him a bunch of times. Uh, the detective, Ace Springer, is going to be played by Paul Dano. Um, they're kind of our main two leads that you're going to be cutting back and forth to. Uh, the police chief that Paul Dano is working for and kind of reports to on it is going to be played by Josh Brolin. Um, and then Paul Dano's estranged father, who he's trying to reconnect with throughout the movie, is like kind of the the family subplot is going to be played by Eric Roberts, um, who a lot of people know now from like The Dark Knight, but he ha has done a lot of stuff and has worked with Paul Thomas Anderson before as well. A Talking Cat, a great a great film. Where yep. he voices a talking cat. Yeah, for that sure. That was, yeah, I was like, that's not... A lot of sci-fi original movies. That is, I swear to God, that's Eric Roberts. Did he? Yeah, it was great. Recent episode of How Did This Get Made? I highly recommend okay. it. The great All Eric right, Roberts. So, he accepts anything and everything. Yep, but he's, uh, he's good in a good movie. So that's who I have there. So my movie is going to be more of like a character piece, crime drama focusing on an insecure detective who stumbles into a le into leading an investigation of the of a serial killer known as the woodpecker uh, for the same reasons as in the original with the messages. Uh, PTA gives his signature style and dysfunctional family themes with uh, Eric Roberts and Paul Dano, uh, a chilling performance by Joaquin Phoenix, and then is kind of what you're going to be advertised as in this. Um, the plot wise, it splits following our detective and Joaquin Phoenix on his kills until they finally meet at the end when Dano's father becomes a potential victim. Um, Ace is finally able to gain his confidence and is tracked down the woodpecker with a hostage. We get the detective's kind of big final revelation scene uh, about putting all the, the pieces together. It seems like this kind of triumphant moment that he's going to, you know, go in and, and, and kind of win the day kind of deal. Uh, and, but he's thrown off after he sees that his father is the one that is the hostage. Uh, after finally reconciling him with, with him earlier in the movie, uh, him being held ho hostage drive, drives Ace mad and agrees to let the serial killer go if he just lets, it, lets um, his father leave. 
uh, he, he would throw the investigation and say that he was wrong. Uh, he didn't want to lose what he already lost once in his life. Uh, after he agrees, Ace lets his guard down, and we have a close-up shot on Dano's face as he gets shot and killed in the head by the woodpecker uh, in front of his father. Um, the woodpecker leaves, continuing his killing spree. So we have kind of a dramatic, like a, you know, kind of crazy ending kind of deal there. I think it's going to be like talked about, like that ending can be talked about for sure with Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay, interesting. All right, um, Joe, what do you got for us? All right, so I went in a little bit different of a direction. Um, let's see. So the rule I used for mine is I uh, made mine a foreign film, <clears throat> uh, specifically a South Korean foreign film. Um, my director is uh, Kim Ji-wook, who directed I Saw the Devil uh, and The Good, the Bad, and the Weird, and I Saw the Devil is kind of the tone I want to go for f- for this. Uh, I didn't really name my characters because I don't really know like Korean names that well, but my older detective character is played by... Uh, Kang Ho Sung, who is the main dad in Parasite, and he was also in A Taxi Driver. Um, my little bit younger detective is played by uh, Gong Yu, who is in uh, who is the dad in Train to Busan. And then the role of the woodpecker in mine is played by uh, Ma Dong Seok, who is in The Outlaws, Train to Busan, and then he's going to be in Marvel's The Eternals as well. So in my movie, uh, the older detective is a widowed single father to a teen daughter who is about to head to America for college. He is dealing with the feeling of loneliness when he and his partner get a murder case where a body was staged under a tree with a message carved in. The message is a riddle. Confused by the riddle, the detectives aren't able to solve it until a week later when another body is found under a tree with a new riddle. Eventually, the slightly younger detective realizes that the riddles point to the next victim. And based on when the bodies are discovered, the two detectives realize that the murders must happen at the same time every week. So the serial killer must know their schedules. They solve the latest riddle and realize it must be close to murder time. They discover the apartment is wi- of the victim is wide open and they're too late. About three hours later, the next body and clue come in. It takes them a while to solve the next clue and the older detective doesn't like the answer. The next victim will be his daughter. They realize the serial killer they have dubbed the woodpecker is watching them. From there, it becomes a cat and mouse game and finding the killer before his daughter dies. And that is my pitch. All right. Okay, I like both pitches. This will be a, a good fight. Tristan, before they kind of get into their arguments, do you have any questions for them? Just a little bit for Bobby. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is a director whose tone is really versatile. Like sometimes he's really goofy and funny, and sometimes he can be kind of serious and very uh, controlled and almost dry intentionally, I think. And I want to get a little bit better of an idea of what what style is PTA bringing to this movie and why is, why is he the one who would do this? I think he makes his... The most, he makes his choices very deliberately what movies he directs so why would this be one that pulls him out to do it i think this one would be more of the like uh not not out there crazy but it's more of a uh tense kind of um maybe like a there will be blood uh performance level is what he wants to get out of joaquin phoenix so he's kind of getting that um that type of like that's what i want him to bring is his style and what he can bring to the characters uh and bring like the tenseness tenseness that he can bring to some of the scenes and deliver the crazy ending in a way that makes sense with his style because i think Mm -hmm. he a lot of people that would just kind of fall flat or be just like kind of throw you off but i think his visual style of of paul dano's face in that scene would uh um would fit him i I like that answer and i don't have any questions for joe i got a good picture of what his tone and everything was i'm sure it was a much more johnny leaning pitch (laughs) 
going by that was, the director that was choice more of everything. a me leaning pitch of i think that'd be a cool like killer yeah. movie but yeah, I like yeah, both. No, you no do... questions for Joe, but I'm curious if Johnny has anything. Is it Johnny yeah, you two Fish? picked my uh, two of my favorite directors um, of all time, so it's going to be an interesting fight, different tones. Um, I really like a good um, kind of like a mystery when it comes to these films and like the killers, and it sounds like I know Bobby for sure. You know who the killer is the whole time, Joe. Is yours like a more of a mystery, or is it like I saw the devil? Like you know who the killer is from the start. Uh, mine, I would say, like halfway through, it's a mystery, solving these riddles, trying to figure out, and then about the time they they realize like who that they're watching him, they eventually they during that week because it, there's a week between murders. During that week, they know he's watching the daughter, so they eventually figure out who the guy is, and that's when it becomes. Um, that's when they figure it out and then it's more about chasing him but they also have to they can't just protect part of it is they can't just protect the daughter because he's their only way to capture or she's their only way to capture him okay all right interesting i like both of those so um we'll do this so bobby gave his pitch first so he will make the first argument so tristan will have his uh stopwatch and we'll um you know you when that timer goes so we'll just start it whenever bobby starts talking all right so what i want to start with is it's it's sometimes hard to fight some of the foreign movies but i can tell you with the plot that's kind of given it sounds like a well done but a little bit more generic kind of mystery thriller uh crime drama uh whereas mine i think that paul thomas anderson brings something very different in a character study uh especially when you do see the killer but you don't know who he is or his background and that's what the detective is figuring out through his messages and through his investigation is actually giving the character backstory of who this guy is kind of profiling him to be able to find him so you're revealing that throughout the movie you get family drama with him and his father that comes back yeah, at the end sense. and i think you get a better ending um rather than just like it's a race to find the girl at the end which you know we've seen and it can be done well and it could be solid but i think mine would stand out a little more than your plot. Um, Ten more and, seconds. Yeah, that's that's all I have then, so I'm good. Surrendering your time. Joe, you got a minute. All right, am I starting now? Yep. All right, so my whole thing with yours is, like, I understand the character study thing, but I think part of it, too, is if the killer gets away, it's going to be a very unsatisfying ending. I just think most people walking out of that theater are going to feel, like, disappointed. I don't know if the character study aspect of it will, will work as much. Um and I just, I just, that's the main thing against yours. Like, I understand with Paul Dano and Joaquin Phoenix, like, the performances will be good, but I just feel like, regardless of that, yours is going to be a very unsatisfying ending. And I think the riddle aspect in the original was one of the more intriguing aspects, where I feel like yours is you more just like messages. Seconds. And I think without the riddles, it doesn't feel like the woodpecker that people know. And that was the best aspect of that movie. So I think yours lacking the riddles seconds, uh, is one of its main problems. And that I'll surrender the rest of my time. All right. Okay. So All right. we'll switch over to Bobby then. And Bobby, you got two minutes to tell us why Joe's is actually terrible and yours is so much better than his. Um, so I'll start off. I think that kind of the subversion of that like happy ending with a lot of character pieces uh, is kind of what I'm going for. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson can pull that off and make it like a very talked about thing of like, I can't believe they did that. You know, that he was a sympathetic character because he's going to start out very, he's like shy. He stumbles into leading investigation because he finds the first body. 
um, and is and has like a good track on the messages. He's very good at the riddles, which there are there. It's riddles, but it's not like a mystery to us. It's a mystery to him in order to figure out who it is. That's what I was saying. It's like that type of thing. Um, and then you see his confidence grow. You see him recon- reconcile with his father, and then you get that kind of crazy ending with with him being killed. And I and you're also following Joaquin Phoenix for so long in the movie that he's almost a main. He, they're the two like lead characters. So one of them is going to win. You really don't know who is going to win, and it's going back and forth kind of throughout the movie. Uh, so I think that he can pull that off um, as well. And then yours, again, I, my biggest attack with it, because I don't know much about your directors and, and people that are in it, is it sounds like a solid crime drama with nothing too special about it. Um, one minute warning, Matthew. And mine at least keeps the elements of what the what was at least intriguing in the original and then expands on it and throws some more intriguing aspects with the characters rather than just the plot and the story um, into it. And then also Paul Thomas Anderson can get such good performances out of people that you're locked in the entire time. There you go. Any last statements, Bobby? That's it. All right, Joe, you got two minutes. Why is defend yours and then get some attacks on Bobby's? All right, I feel as far as my performance, you know, performances, I feel like the three leads in my movie can definitely pull great performances as well as, you know, having their director direct them. And I think as far as character study goes, I think part of mine is like a character study on the uh, lead police officer uh, because you're kind of exploring his day-to-day life and his personality and having him dealing with the fact that he's going to be all alone when his daughter goes to America and he's having to deal with that. And then at the end where he has to risk his daughter, risk the one thing he cares about to capture uh, this serial killer. And it's kind of this thing of what does he choose? Like, does he, you know, do his job? Does he do his duty or does he like stick with family and uh, hide his daughter away and then risk the case and risk somebody else getting murdered. So you have character or character study aspects in mind as well. And as far as yours, I still feel like regardless of how much we follow the serial killer, having the serial killer walk away and win at the end is still going to be, you know, I, it's still not going to be a great ending to that movie. People are going to be like, oh, I was all on board with that movie. And then the ending happened and I was out. And that's, that's what I got. All right. Uh, since Johnny's making the final call, I'm going to give my thoughts really quick before we hear his. Uh, I thought Paul Thomas Anderson was an interesting choice for this. It wouldn't necessarily be the person I would go to for like a crime murder kind of movie like this, but I think it paid off pretty well. I'm leaning towards Bobby's direction here. I think his is just a bit more creative for me. I think Joe's sounds good. It sounds like a really entertaining crime thriller but I just think it will be one that kind of blends in with among the mess of all the other kind of crime thrillers and I know for Johnny uh, South Korean movies are something that stands out a bit more than they do for me so that this might be one that worked a bit more for him but for me it would be one where I'd be going through the Netflix and I'd be on South Korean dramas and I'd see that one and be like oh that one looks pretty good and then just go past something else and it just doesn't seem like one that would stick with me compared to, compared to Bobby's but I'm curious on Johnny's thoughts here I'm not 100% but I just felt a little bit more memorable towards Bobby's. It's it's tough because, as I said, I, I love both directors. I like the directions you guys went, but I did have some problems with both pitches. Um, I would have liked, with Joe, especially with the director he chose and saying it's more I saw the devil, I kind of like the mystery aspect, but it kind of sounds like you combined memories of a murder and I saw the devil in terms of like plot, and I would have liked you to go either all mystery until the end and maybe you never find out who the killer is or you know who the killer is from the start and you get to see him 
do these brutal murders, um, you know, from the very beginning, because that in I Saw the Devil, you know, obviously the whole time who the who the serial killer is. And Bobby, it would be very distracting for me for Paul Dano, who's going to be the Riddler to be solving riddles the whole movie, personally would uh, take me out of it a lot. I don't know if you considered I mean, that in your pitch, but I, mean, I was thinking about it. Um, yeah. But even that being said, Paul Dano gives his best performances when he is the person that you are rooting for to die in the end or hate or whatever. So I like in There Will Be Blood, you know, he's never better in that or even in Prisoners and things like that. He always plays like the real evil dude best. So I don't love the casting of him as like your lead. So I don't know. I, it, I'm kind of torn. And I think in the end, if I have to compare them to just like visually what I see from what I'm getting, Joe's sounds like um, Joe sounds like a movie I would definitely check out. Bobby's is one that I would see, but it sounds more like an inherent vice. And I feel like that's like the lower end of Paul Thomas Anderson type of stuff. So I, I think in the end, I would go for Joe, but I was torn the entire time up until I just said Joe. So <laughs> that was like 5149. I'm going to go Joe. And that was uh that was close though. Um Epic right. show the lead one to nothing on the on the oh, match. Yeah. As it should be. Right. I so this is interesting with the new format because there's one that I definitely want to get to. Mm-hmm. But uh, and I love it, but it's definitely a all or nothing. You're going to think it's ridiculous or you're going to love it like I do. So I think I'm gonna go for it. And I'm gonna go do flaming it, hots. Okay. Flaming hots. Flaming I'll let Hots. Joe, I'll let Joe go first on uh, this. Flaming Hots, because I have a attachment to the source material. There's a pretty big twist ending at the end of the original Flaming Hots, too, so I'm curious if you guys are going to adapt the twist ending at all. Or have any there, kind of there's twist some type of ending. <laughs> Always ends. There's <laughs> an ending. It ends. Does the serial killer get away in yours, too? Uh, kind of. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that was no. the only thing. I thought it was weird that in the South Korean movie, the the guy doesn't get away, and then in the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I would expect both of those have, to have been flipped as far as just movies that I've seen. Um, but yeah, all right, so Flaming Hots, getting back to that, came out in 1940. The director was George Stevens. It got an 82% of Rotten Tomatoes. Um, this slapstick comedy romance follows Cary Grant's Nick Rogers, a charismatic con artist who poses as a firefighter, and Dorothy Lee's Minnie Handy, a beautiful woman who begins starting fires to see him. Based on the stage play of the same name, Flaming Hots was buried by MGM when the studio decided to pull the movie in favor of his, of his Girl Friday, leaving it vaulted for decades before a home video release in 1986. So you can imagine a movie coming out or being made in 1940. Coming out in 1986 was not the most popular thing. Uh, gotta love the name Mini Handy, though. Um, so, Bobby, you seem confident or... You're confident I, either I love my pitch. I love so my see. pitch, but it's going to probably split people, is all I'll say. All Just because right. well, it's I'm excited. I think that means I think it's good news for you that Tristan is making the final call on what could <laughs> be like a ridiculous pitch. Yeah. So it's not um, as bad as some other ones I had, but honestly, I just like this one. So, well, uh, but I, like I said, I'll have Joe. Or Joe's so. going to go first. We'll we'll change right. it up from last time. All right, Joe. Let's hear your flaming hots movie, which is. Not the biopic of the guy who made Flaming Hot Cheetos, which is 
coming out sometime. Maybe not, because yeah. now that whole story's probably not under contention, and they're saying the whole story's false. But uh, oh. so the director of my movie is Christopher Landon, who directed Happy Death Day, Freaky, and a Scout's Guide to a Zombie Apocalypse. My Nick Waller is going to be played by Tom Holland, and then my Mini Handy is going to be played by Zoe Deutsch. So, my film follows a similar plot to the first one. However, instead of a slapstick romance movie, I am making it more of a thriller comedy. Thriller comedy, mainly because I couldn't think of a way to have a fun romantic movie with a you know female lead who lights buildings on fire in any way that I thought would be not like crazy. So. Uh, Nick Waller is a con artist who poses as a firefighter in bars frequented by rich divorcees. He flirts with older women and goes back to their house, and when they are drunk and passed out, he steals their valuables. When the bartender at one of the bars he frequents, Minnie, becomes obsessed with him and is curious why he never talks to her and only the older women, she begins lighting fires to get his attention, thinking that he is in fact a firefighter. However, Nick is one. However, Nick is never one of the firefighters who shows up to the fires. Minnie corners Nick one day at the bar. She says there are a lot of fires in the area and is curious why he isn't ever there. Nick realizes Minnie must have started the fires and he realizes he is in over his head. Nick decides to contact his father, who hasn't talked to him since he found out he became a con man. His father is Roy Waller, Nicolas Cage's character from Matchstick Men, and that's the rule I'm using is a character made famous by Nicolas Cage. Uh, a movie about a con man who reforms his ways when he realizes he might have a daughter. Uh, you know, the mo overall movie is about Nick and his father Roy working together to pull off a con to get Minnie to check herself into a mental institution, and that is my movie. All right. I'm guessing Bobby used a similar rule on this one. Um, Couldn't tell. Bobby, what is what is your pitch? Uh, mine's a little different in that. Uh... I, I did keep it a comedy, but I did, uh, but it's not like slapstick. So I did. Um, the director is Kay Cannon, who did Blockers, which I think was directed very well, and took someone who I think is very hit or miss in John Cena and you know, as a lead and put in a, a good performance in there uh, and made a funny movie. Um, and my lead uh, male character in the movie is going to be Nicolas Cage um, as the character Cameron Poe from the movie mm -hmm. Con Air. Um, my uh, my mini handy in the movie is going to be played by Jane Lynch, um, who a lot of people know from from a lot of things, but Glee and um, she's a voice in like uh, Wreck It Ralph and a lot of stuff. But she is a funny kind of plays an intimidating character, like kind of a lot of the time, like intimidating, funny character. And that's what I'm going for. So after the events of Con Air, Cameron Poe used his background in the service to become a firefighter, giving himself a new start. He's still married, but when he rescues a woman named Minnie from a fire, his world is turned upside down. Minnie falls hard for the Fabio-haired firefighter and starts setting fires as an excuse to see him. He constantly turns her down because of his wife, uh, while also finding her incredibly intimidating and creepy, leading to funny scenes between the two of them as she kind of overpowers Nicolas Cage's character throughout the movie. <laughs> nice. I don't know what's going on right now, but... Um, what the boy? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I get it, but... Um, but yeah, so near the end of the movie, a lot of the movie is the back and forth of like, it's a funny Cameron Poe is the, still the kind of shy, like Southern, uh, whatever character, whatever accent he's doing in Con Air. And she's the intimidating, crazy starting fires woman who's fallen for him. Um, and near the end of the movie, Poe, it seems like finally Poe is like given in and starts to fall for a mini back and cheat on his wife when it's revealed that he was working with the cops to track her down because he knows she's setting all these crazy fires. And he's like, no, you're insane. Uh, and has her 
arrested at the end. But yeah, it's a weird romantic comedy thing where one side is definitely not loving it, and one is very, and then we have a crazy Jane Lynch. So I think Nicolas Cage can put a put a fun like performance in, and Jane Lynch could have a good like dynamic with him. So there's my movie. Interesting. I'm glad I'm not making the final call <laughs> on these. Um, and that being said, I'll. Uh, I guess I'll ask a question. Um, you know what? No, I'll just let Tristan get to uh, get to his question because I don't really have. I, I kind of understand what both your movies are. Maybe not for the better, but Tristan definitely has a question for you. Look, I mean, I I understand both of your movies pretty well. I don't have a ton of questions, but I was hoping for some good plot twists. You know, I mentioned that there was good twist ending, but. Uh, I can. I think we can make up for that. All right. So there's there's some really good quotable lines in this movie. So I want Joe. Just give me one of your favorite lines from Playing the House. Just quote it off the top of your head. Any line. Oh, in, in my movie. Yeah. Any of your best lines. Oh. Uh, there's the a the th- there's a scene where uh, you know Tom Holland has finally convinced his dad to work with him again to pull off this con, and. Uh, to get Zoe Deutsch's character to basically uh, check herself into a mental institution, and because of the whole like the, the flaming hots title and everything, and her setting houses on fire, uh, and his character infamously wears sunglasses in Matchstick Men. So as he's putting on his sunglasses, he just looks at the camera. It's like we're gonna burn it all down, and it's just a cheesy comedy Nicolas Cage line. <laughs> I like that. Bobby, you got any comedy lines? You got Nick Cage as your lead, so I hope you got some good quotes. I, I think that Nicolas Cage is going to play it completely seriously, but give some like really dumb fire puns throughout the entire movie without really knowing what he's doing. Um, and so that's going to bring some of the comedy. So, you know, like, you know, I have a, I have a burning question for you, or, you know, um, and, she, and like something about burning love or. Um, talking about getting heartburn from things like stuff that is like so stupid that as he, as he keeps doing it, it gets funnier and funnier as you kind of catch on. So I think just those quotes as they add up is going to be like, what is, what is going on here type of thing? Like just kind of a weird, awkward, I, I'm going for a very awkward comedy. I, I really like, I think that can. Any uh, references well. to the great hot love? It could be. Yeah. They, they have, I mean, there, there's a, almost a hot love scene in the end when the, when the building's on fire and. Uh, <laughs> That's true. So, I would argue any scene with Nicolas Cage is a hot love scene. And maybe he was delighted to see her. I mean, you know. (laughs) Okay, Tristan, get to your question. We got to get to the argument. Bobby, argue with Joe. No, I start first. (laughs) Why is yours better? So, my main attacks against Bobby is I feel like it makes a funny pitch, and I think it would be a solid SNL sketch. I just think overall for a you know two hour movie or hour forty five movie, I just think it's going to lose a lot of its steam. And then the one thing of like having this be Cameron Poe going up against Jane Lynch, especially you know if that's the rule you want to use, I'm going to say it's bad rule usage for the story you did because I don't see him being intimidated by Jane Lynch. He was arrested because his hands were registered as deadly weapons in. Uh, con air so the f- fact that you're having him use his brains instead of his strength to fight jane lynch it just feels like it doesn't flow it doesn't make sense with the con air that we know and i feel like it just completely is like it would have made more sense to use like a different um nicholas cage character i feel like you used the yeah, one character more that seconds, doesn't yeah. really fit with of using the character known for his fighting ability that is afraid to fight jane lynch 
All right, Bobby, you respond to that, or you get some attacks? Well, but he, but he was all, yeah. To he was also a, a gentleman that wouldn't hit a woman and wouldn't like. So I think it's more of that he is like I don't really know what to do with the situation. Um, and he's also it's years later. He's calmed down. He's a firefighter. He's not going out and like fighting people. He's trying to use his strength and stuff to save people. So you get the epic like when he does his rescues and stuff. It's like the epic Cameron Poe, you know, moving fire you know, stuff out of the way and, and trying to get to people and rescue them. But then like the dynamic change from that to when he's faced with Jane Lynch being like, I have no idea what to do with this person is I think that can be a funny dynamic personally. Um, yeah, 20 seconds, Bobby. And then uh, with yours, like, like you said, mine sounds like an SNL sketch or something. Yours just sounds like a little more of a, just a generic, um, you know, uh, horror comedy or whatever you're doing with yours with the people setting them on fire the house on fire and it doesn't it didn't really stand out personally in mine i think would be, would at least stand out and be you know talked about all right joe you're gonna get two minutes tell us why yours is better and bobby's is worse yeah yours might be talked about but i don't know if it's gonna be for the right reasons mine i feel like it'd be interesting because you have zoe deutsch who normally plays like these kooky weird characters but they're usually like well-meaning good-hearted people and mine she's just completely like off her rocker like i'm lighting houses on fire and to the point where like you meet her in the bar for the first time and she's kind of like your typical character that she plays and then very quickly you realize that she is legitimately dangerous with the fact that she's letting these houses on fire. And I think it would be fun to see Nicolas Cage back kind of in a mixture of his character from Matchstick Men as a con man, coming back as an older version of that character, getting back into cons again, but in this type of, you know, horror comedy, being afraid of this uh, young girl trying to, like, working with his son on basically this date from hell. And I think it could be, you know, interesting... Uh, concept and I think it also, I also like the play of the titles together where his character is from Matchstick Men and then this is uh, a movie about fires so I like that aspect too if they kind of go together and I feel like it's also a continuation of his character from uh, Matchstick Men of being this reformed con man and now he has to go back into it and it ties to the movie with the movie ended with his wife pregnant in that one and now his son's all grown up playing by tom holland and i think it'd be kind of interesting to see tom holland and nicholas cage work together and uh that's all i've got all right uh i got one final question for you joe just for a couple of seconds here let's talk a bit about tom holland's character i think tom holland outside of spider-man has been kind of mixed in his movie work so i just want to get your why was tom holland your choice as your lead over other actors uh, Tom Holland was my choice. Number one, I think he kind of fit the age demographic I was going for. But I also feel like he could play, like when he's Peter Parker, it's kind of like that mix of Peter Parker and uh, Spider-Man, where I feel like when he's pretending to be the firefighter and he's hitting on the older women, I could kind of see him as like this kind of confident guy. But then when it comes to Zoe Deutsch and her craziness and go, having to go to his back to his dad for help, I could see him more as like the scared and intimidated and unsure what to do kind of character. He plays more as Peter Parker. So that was kind of my thought process for why him. All right. I got to be the one making the final call here, uh, unfortunately. But Johnny, so give I, me your thoughts. Or what, yeah, or he gets too many. Bobby minutes. Has, I have too many. Bobby Bobby yeah. Go for it, Bobby. I was distracted by Joe's. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing, because I, I feel like I've been defending my movie most of the time, is with Joe, again, your Tom Holland choice. I do like Tom Holland as an actor and as Spider-Man, but he he plays very young. He looks very young. One thing that was criticized in the movie Cherry that just came out is that he he still looks like a teenager in that role. 
Um, and so you're having him like hit on women and be this like confident guy. I don't think he's the right choice for that. I actually see that coming off and playing very strange uh, to me. Um, and so I don't think he's the right cho- choice to be Nicolas Cage's son, personally, uh, especially with his character Matchstick Men and them him being having that personality. Uh, with mine, again, it is it's it's a weird concept. It's bizarre. It's gonna it's gonna have it o- its audience, but I think it's going to be a lot. M- again, stand out. It gives a character like Conair or like like Cameron Poe from Conair a chance to come back and at least be like uh, it's entertaining and charismatic because he's such a weird. He does that weird accent and like this weird thing, and it just completely works um, to have to put him in something that could um, as like you know a love romantic comedy, but give him that. Uh, the chance to kind of shine again as a lead in that role as, as this character, I think is something I want to see. Um, and I think Jane Lynch, again, I just like their dynamic. I've repeated that a few times, so that's fine. But, but again, yeah, my main argument for yours, again, it sounds a little more generic as, as a horror comedy. I don't love the the casting of Tom Holland. I don't think it's going to stand out as much as mine when you, when you are scrolling through and looking at different movies, like kind of Tristan pointed out in the first, uh, at the first pitches. All right, uh, Johnny, you got any final thoughts or any last second? Am I allowed to make like one quick, like one sentence thing? Go for it, Joe. My my thing of why I cast Tom Holland is like part of him playing young, is I thought it was part of the reason that would set off Zoe Deutsch. Is she's like, why is he? He's like nineteen, twenty years old. Why is he going after these forty-five-year-old women and not me? And that was kind of my. Just to clarify. Yeah, um, I have no issue with the Tom Holland casting. I'll just say that. I mean, I can't see him being spawned from Nicolas Cage. But um, other than that, I mean, I think uh, people kind of overlook the devil all the time on Netflix, and Tom Holland gives a really, really great performance in that, and he doesn't look too young to be in that role or um, anything like that. I believed him in that. It kind of reminded me of, like, when Shia LaBeouf started doing movies like Lawless and people took him seriously. Um, I think Tom Holland is kind of due to to kind of do that, break away from what he's doing. But I didn't see Cherry. Um but that being said, I don't know. It, it's tough because honestly, don't I'm not really interested in either movie. I think Bobby's would have been better with a different. If you had just a straight up like different lead, and then he recruited Cameron Poe as a firefighter to help him, I think you could have done something a little more interesting as far as like a story dynamic. I don't love the Jane Lynch being obsessed with Cameron Poe type of thing. I, I don't think that works, especially with him being such a family man and stuff like that in the first one, I don't think necessarily plays to your your movie's strengths and where directions you could have gone. Um, and, you know, but at the end of the day, ooh, I don't know. I'm not making the, the final decision. If I had to call it, it'd probably be as close as the last one. I'd probably end up going with, with Joe's just to see something with a director I like and something going forward. Uh, a little better. I don't see Cameron Poe fitting into the world of blockers, and I think at least everything Joe pitched I could see in a movie. It might not be a great movie, but it at least all fits, and I don't think Bobby had elements that fit together. So that's where I think I'd end up going, but Tristan is making the final call. We'll see what he has to say. Yeah, I'm curious because Bobby mentioned that this was one that he uh, thought was going to be the really big risk and the one that he thought would be the crazy one. And... I was expecting more crazy. There's yeah, there's actually one more crazier crazy. one, but I said this is one I wanted to get to that at least is somewhat crazy. But and there's I think one more. Cameron Poe character choice is probably the what is holding it back a bit because I think that there's better Cage characters that you could fit in that role. And I think like to make it work with the character we know from the original, he had to do a little bit of maneuvering, I think. 
I think he would have worked a bit better as like a supporting character. Uh, I'm, I'm, Joe, I'm mixed because I don't think Tom Holland necessarily has the chops to pull off like this dashing, handsome kind of older man who's hitting on these older women and, and pulling it off. I think he naturally gravitates towards like the young kind of look, but I'd like to see him try something new. And I think using Nick Cage in a supporting role, I think, is a bit better for this kind of a rule. So, by a sliver, I'm going to lean towards Joe on this one, which cool. is surprising me. Wow, so I 51-49 on two decisions. That's tough, especially in this format. Yeah. Oh, you're going to have to go with something you're confident in next. I will right. say, uh, Flaming Hots was the one movie I wasn't ever going to pick if it was my rule to pick so i'm happy yeah that was a surprising choice uh for that pitch Bobby just wanted to shout out cameron poe so i can yeah. bring the bunny back i, I it, it's one of the, it's tough and i'm getting used to this new format because there's a lot i wanted to say that you guys then brought up as a fight against cameron poe and i'm like i didn't have a chance to or like didn't think of saying it in, in that amount of time but right. with the family aspect but that's all right no big deal let's go to uh let's do metroid i like yeah Samus. i was hoping we would we would get to this one. All right, Metroid, based on the popular uh, game, which I believe uh, came out in Japan in 1986. Uh, the film came out in 2001. It got a 13% around Tomatoes, partly because it was directed by Alex Proyas. Samus Aran, played by Mia Jovovich, is a space bounty hunter who finds an ancient space suit. This suit provides her with the abilities to protect the galaxy from space pirates attempting to harness the control of the Metroid race of parasitic aliens. The film was rushed into development after the success of The Matrix, and the lackluster special effects were one of the many reasons the film bombed. So um, that is that is the version of Metroid we got. I'm interested to see where you guys go with it. Bobby, are you going first? This I'll go first. Said? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, so... Because of my rule choice, I really really didn't cast anyone because it's mostly going to be voice actors. I am making this a foreign film, and it's an anime. So this is going to be a Metroid anime film directed by Tatsuya Nagamini, uh, who directed the One Piece movie as well as Dragon Ball Super uh, Brawly, which was a very big hit um, and one of the better uh, Dragon Ball movies that has come out within the past few years. Really good visual style, really good action, a lot of stuff that you would want to see in a Metroid game, um, game adaptation. Uh, my movie is going to be like generally based on the story of Metroid Fusion, um, if anyone has played the games, but it's going to be changed up a little bit just so that it's not a straight-up adaptation of a singular game. Uh, Samus um, Aaron, former, a former Galactic Federation soldier turned bounty hunter, explores the surface of planet SR-388 with a crew from the Biological Space Laboratories, or BSL. In a tense scene reminiscent of the Alien franchise, she's attacked by a parasitic organism known as X, which is a variant of the Metroid aliens. After her ship crashes, she is rushed to the Galactic Federation for treatment and given a vaccine from the from Metroid blood. She recovers um, and is she recovers from the parasite, but now has some of the weaknesses of the actual Metroids, including sensitivity sensitivity to cold and other things that'll be like you know powered as she's fighting others. It'll come up throughout the movie um, as part. But now she can also absorb absorb parasite X for energy because the, during the surgery. Uh, for her treatment, part of her suit is now bound to her. It's called the power suit. It's like one of the most famous things in the Metroid franchise to, to be kind of shown. Uh, it's a really popular thing in there to, to put in the movie. 
throughout the movie, there's flashbacks to her as a soldier in the Federation. So we get kind of her backstory uh, with her and her commander, Adam, who died in a tragic incident incident that made her leave the Federation and become a bounty hunter. Um, With a crew and the AI on her new ship, she investigates the parasitic planet. Uh, The AI is very cryptic with her throughout the movie, and you kind of have this back and forth, and you get the idea that the AI might have, like, its own agenda, as it is from the Federation. Um, They find... Samus is able to find out that higher-ups in the Federation are planning on using the parasite as a biological weapon since it absorbs energy and can recreate beings with even more power, which created a dark Samus as an enemy due to her earlier infection in the beginning scene, so that becomes kind of one of the main villains as dark Samus, uh, as well as the actual... Um, Metroid, the X parasites. Um, we also get the reveal that the AI in her ship is the consciousness of her, of her old commander, Adam, big uh, character in the game, who is able to recognize Samus and then help her instead of following the Federation's plans as after it, he kind of becomes aware of that and gets memories. Um, so these are just a lot of the subplots. I, I wanted to include a lot of stuff that that Metroid fans would enjoy, but the overall story is, is, is a, you know, it, parasite, attack you get um government uh corruption uh you get tenseness on a planet with like alien type scenes and the finale is a fight between samus and dark samus that results in samus sending a space station crashing into the federation's headquarters so it shows off a lot of the powers from the game uh with the power suit a lot of the visuals people love um relatively simple story with a lot of good character stuff in it that is kind of more of the complex part of it um, and I think animes can pull that off pretty well. Okay. All right, Joe, what do you got for us? All right, well, in a slightly different direction. All right. So uh, the director I chose for mine is uh, Alex Garland. And then uh, for my Samus, and this is where my rule comes in, I chose, you know, I chose the rule of putting an actor on the map. And uh, I chose Catherine Winnick. Uh, she got her first black belt at 13, started three Taekwondo schools by 21, and she was nominated for uh, Critics' Choice Award for her role on the show Vikings, where she is most known for. And that's where, she, and she was known also known for doing her own stunts on the show. Uh, and so, and I also have various bounty hunters uh, played by people Alex Garland has worked with in the past. You have Carl Urban. Nick Offerman, Oscar Isaac, and Benedict Wong. So, in uh, my movie, the Dragon Pirate Ridley launches an attack on the planet K2L to steal its resources. Samus, a young girl, sees Ridley and tries to uh, initially befriend him. However, Ridley attacks her and she is saved by her mom, who Ridley ultimately kills. Uh, Samus' father dies, creating and detonating a bomb to kill the pirates. Uh, Samus is adopted by the people of Zebus and trained by them. Many years later, Ridley and the Space Pirates attack a Galactic Federation research vessel to steal a bunch of parasitic life forms known as Metroids. The Metroids can latch onto any living organism and drain its life energy. The Space Pirates plan on using them to kill anyone who opposes them. The Galactic Federation, as a last resort, hires a group of bounty hunters to attack the pirates and destroy the Metroids before it's too late. The bounty hunters drop one by one at the hands of the pirates. The last one alive is Samus, just like Ripley was in the movie Alien, which was a big inspiration for the video game. However, I would have the other bounty hunters die relatively early on, leaving Samus all alone. Uh, Samus, going through the base, finds Ridley and must confront and face off with the creature that left her an orphan. And that is my pitch. All right. Interesting pitches. We got an anime versus a live-action version of the... Of a video game, so let's uh, 
going to be an interesting fight with being so different uh, stylistically. So Tristan, you have any questions for them? I don't have a ton of questions. One question for Joe is that uh, Alice Garland's movies are typically very much about something or about something about technology, about humanity, about some kind of deeper theme. So what is your Metroid movie about? Uh, mine is more like, you know, deeper theme. Mine is almost more about like family and found family and like her, but like the bounty hunters over time somewhat become her found family. And then she obviously lost her real parents. So it's kind of about that and, and like the importance of it. And uh, for Bobby, I have one question for you. Just a mm -hmm. little bit of a defense for a second of your director choice, not as an attack necessarily, but why did you choose to go for more of an action director, more so than like a horror, more of a horror anime director or like a thriller kind of director? Um, I mean, I, I named just like the two big things that he's done, but he's done such a variety of anime films and all of them tend to be uh, received well. Um, I think he can pull off just about any style he's going to put to screen. But visually, his what I really wanted from him is visually his animes look stunning. Um, so that when you have space and like vastness and like the ships and you have these big the planets, and, uh, I really want it to like colors to pop and things to stand out and, and that. So that's what I was going for. Yeah, that's all the questions I got. What about you, Johnny? Um, yeah, I mean, my my main question is. I kind of was thinking the same thing along with Joe. His doesn't seem to be like as science-based as I'd expect like an Alex Garland movie to have been. I would have liked maybe some more like alternate reality type of stuff or parallel universe type of stuff, especially opening that up to like a Dark Samus type of thing um, would have fit in better. Um, but I don't really have a question for him. Bobby, my question mainly for you is I get you chose your director because he – has made like a Dragon Ball movie and stuff like that, but none of those are exactly like theatrical yeah, they movies are. that have success. Yeah, Dragon Ball. Dra they they don't seem is. to be a movie. Brawley but they're not is. movies that I would go see. I'm a big fan of Dragon Ball Z, but there's a 0% chance that I would ever go see a Dragon Ball movie in a movie theater. Maybe at yeah. most I would sit down and watch it streaming. What, what about your movie would get someone like me or someone who's not as much into anime to go check your movie out so i'll start with i you this is probably just one over your head but dragon ball super brawly became like one of the biggest uh anime films box office wise in the united states and japan ever when it came out it was very very well done and popular and actually did bring people in especially people here like friends that knew dragon ball z like brought people in to go see it because they're like it's a really good movie like we'll go back and see it and like i'll take you and introduce you to the franchise so when if he can do that with something that's been around forever i think he can do that same type of thing with with samus with metroid um and uh he just he just has the experience so if you give him the right material and people are interested in metroid they're gonna check this out or if they see a cool action um like thriller like thing with you know kind of some of the horror aspects of it but samus is a very popular character they'll recognize from super smash bros and be like oh what's this story um you need someone with the experience that has done this with a franchise before that has drawn people in so i think he has actually shown that he can do that okay and then my my other just quick question for you is just uh to picture how it goes because joe picked an actress that looks a lot like how especially like super smash bros and nintendo has kind of embraced like the more white blonde Samus is yours going to look similar to that or is yours going to have more of like an Asian style character? Um, how like the game originally was in the eighties. 
Um, she's going to be more Asian style. It's going to be like it's going to be mainly focused as an as a foreign film where it is set like this is the Japanese Metroid. And if it has crossover appeal here because it's so well done, then it does. But so that's why they would give that um, like that look to Samus. Okay. All right. Well, that being said, we've uh, kind of gotten everything uh, I think question wise answered. And I think we got some good answers for those. Um, so Bobby started first, so he'll do his argument is, uh, one minute on the clock starts. So I'll, I'll just say, I think that Alex Garland, I think to me, like you guys brought it up, but I was writing it down as he was doing this is that that's the complete wrong choice for this type of movie. I like Alex Garland given a restricted or lower budget thing that he can do whatever he wants and put his own story and his own, uh, like you know, he, he he puts his own themes and adds crazy endings like Annihilation that would never happen in something that's big budget. I want him to put his stamp on something. I don't want him to do a, a big budget thing unless he gets complete freedom. And it sounds like yours is a pretty generic story. I don't really want Alex Garland to be the someone behind a generic story because I think it's kind of a waste of, of his talents. And I don't think it, sh- it shows what he can do. And you can put just about anyone else into your story that you're telling and it would be uh, at least well told. With his, it's like, I don't see what he's bringing. Uh, For mine, I think you're able... I think that what people are finding, because anime has has been getting more and more popular nowadays, like uh, with streaming, with movies, like I said, with Dragon Ball Super Brawly, with um, uh, what's the most recent movie? I'm not going to try to come up with it because I have a time limit, but um, Demon Hunter. that, That had a huge like crossover play, so I think introducing samus and metroid which is kind of a dead video game franchise they don't make as many as they as they do uh as as they should of the character to reintroduce samus in the anime form which is more in the style of the video game which shows off what she's really like and what the game is like and what the franchise should be i think is the way to go instead of a live action version of something that's kind of fading in popularity other than in super smash bros i don't know much time but yeah yeah Yeah, 20 more seconds, but I'll give them over to Joe. Joe, you got a minute or so. Go for it. All right, yeah, so my main thing is I started taking notes on Bobby's, and, like, people may be like, oh, mine's a simple story and mine's generic, and I feel like that was um, the simpleness of mine was a choice as I wanted to make it more accessible to people that weren't Metroid fans, and my main thing against Bobby's is I started taking notes, and then I didn't even know what the hell he was talking about, and I feel like if you're not a Metroid fan, his movie's just, like, not appealing. Like, I feel like it's too complicated and there's too much going on with like Samus and Dark Samus and X and all of that. I just feel like if you don't know anything about Metroid and you start watching trailers for this, you're just going to be like, yeah, that was even if, even if you're down to watch an anime, you're going to be like, that's like too confusing for me. And you're going to be checked out. And I feel like as far as uh, most franchises go, like I feel like this is very easy, easily could be a live action uh, franchise. So I feel like, you know, that's what people would rather see, especially with graphics and stuff getting better in the video games. I feel like it's already kind of just a four-hour animated mo- video games are essentially like six-hour animated movies as they already are. So I feel mm-hmm. like making it animated, it's like, doesn't really add much. And so that's All right, my we're now attack. strapping over a bit. Oh, okay. Well, that's... Uh, two minutes on the clock for you, Robbie. Go for it. Okay, so I think part of, because I am a fan of Metroid, I got into the, like, I was saying a lot of things, but the plot, if I'm just going to break down the basic plot of my movie that you can put into a trailer that would make sense, is that 
Samus goes to a planet, gets infected by an alien. It ends up giving her powers, including the suit. There you go. So that's like like the main suit that people know. And then it is a thriller of a group, a team on a planet investigating, and you get alien tense type scenes. You get character, like stuff that's not going to be shown in the trailer. Like there, obviously there's character stuff in every movie with her and Adam and all that. And then um, the end of the, like it's the Federation, it's a corrupt government fight, bam. So it's like, you can put that in a trailer and there's your story. Then when you get in there, you get the more complexities of a, okay, here's a little bit more of her origin. This is how she got there. Uh, sprinkled in like you know it's not like this huge distracting subplot but that ties back in because of the introduction of adam which is a big character in the game um in all in all the games so you at least have that character in the movie um and yours again i i think it's the choice of alex garland i think it's the choice of doing it live action at a point when which it sounds like it's a super big budget live action movie for a franchise that like i said is fading i think the reintroduction in anime in a theatrical version of anime, which are very becoming very popular and making a lot of money right now. Uh, and in the U S too, if you look at like demon slayer was like the number one movie of 2020, even, you know, like with restricted box office and stuff, but it was a very, very, um, high grossing movie. Same demon slayer, I think is the movie is the title of it, but yeah, during most super Brawley, it do really well. Yeah. So like it's becoming more and more popular and it should be a way that, a lot of these video games, especially Japanese uh, founded video games, should be adapted at least first. Get that story out. Get an absolute adaptation that Hollywood can look at and be like, oh, that's what this should be. Not us taking it and going from there and put it, putting it straight to a big budget movie. All right. I cut you off in the middle there. Joe is not paying attention to the time, but now you've got two minutes. Give us some defense for yourself and some attacks on Bobby's. All right, so the main two things I feel like people say against mine are like the big budget level and uh, Alex Garland directing, and I'll start with Alex Garland uh, directing. I feel like the main reason I picked him is I know he officially didn't direct Dread, but he basically ghost directed that. I kind of wanted like the look and the action of Dread, and also with Ridley being this dragon pirate as the main villain, I, w- I wanted it to have like a cool, unique, good look, and I was thinking what he did with the mutant bear and Annihilation you know, he could take something that looks so weird and bizarre as that and still, like, include it in this world and make it believable. So I thought he could do the same thing with Ridley, and that's kind of why I wanted to do with that. And as far as my story, it's, like, about, you know, it's a movie where basically this woman and a group of bounty hunters go up against some pirates to ultimately stop, you know, this dragon and stop them from getting the Metroids. I feel like Alex Garland has a lot of room to put his own stamp and thoughts in there, and I don't think that necessarily has to be a big budget. You can look at something like The Mandalorian, which has a lot, you know, a similar kind of aspect to that and plot as that, and it's, you know, relatively small budget with makeup effects and, you know, the suit that he wears is relatively a similar look to uh, Samus's power suit, and I feel like it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, the big budget like Bobby says it is. I feel like it could be a relatively, like, mid-level budget, you know, $60 million movie. And I, and I, like, Bobby can talk, like, his movies do well for anime movies in America, but I feel like I'm relatively, like, pop-culturally attuned, and I had no idea there was, like, this Dragon Ballsy animated movie or the Demon Slayer movie or whatever he was talking about. I just, like, never you popped up on seconds, my yeah. radar at all, and that's what I have to defend myself and attack his. All right. Uh, that's just some good arguments on both sides. I'm definitely leading one direction here. Since uh, Johnny's making the final call, I'm just going to give my thoughts out front. I think Alex Garland as a director pick was really promising and interesting. And then 
as Joe was going through his pitch, I just became less and less interested. I just think it doesn't feel like something that would grab my attention as an Alex Garland fan. Like I'm, his name's on it, so I'm going to go see it. But it's not a premise where I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see what he do with that. I would love to see a Metroid movie from Alex Garland, but I just think Joe's movie sounds a bit too straightforward, a bit less on the like ambiguous sci-fi thinker kind of side. And this is a lot of the potential that I think is in the Metroid premise with Garland on, or Garland attached to it. And I think Bobby, the anime stuff, like I do think it's having a big kind of growth in the U.S. I think anime is becoming more and more popular as streaming becomes popular and people are watching stuff like Attack on Titan and anime is becoming a huge thing in the United States. And Dragon Ball uh, did make a lot of money and Demon Slayer made tons of money last year. So I think there's, a, there's like a niche that Bobby's movie could really fit into and be a big hit. And I think the brand recognition of Metroid can get over anyone who's kind of turned off by the premise. Like, if you're willing to watch an animated movie, you at least know of Samus and Metroid. So you're like, I'm willing to get, like, the story of what that game is and give it a shot. So I'm leaning towards Bobby here by a pretty big amount here. I just do want to say, because it's crazy, $455 million for Demon Slayer. Highest gross. That's crazy. I had literally never heard of that movie until Bobby said it out loud. Um... Yeah, none of that's really on my radar, um, like Joe said, but I agree at the end of the day with Tristan. He said mostly what needs to be said. Alex Garland, I think, would be an amazing choice to do um, a live-action Metroid if they went that way. I even like, I would like like a Sonoya Mizuno uh, to be in the lead role, but Joe, I liked his casting too, especially it's someone who has the look of what I think a studio would actually um with the character based on what is popular in the games and stuff like that but at the end of the day yeah joe went more towards dread and i think he should have went more towards alex garland's stronger work and went more with like different realities and and parallel universes because all of that is in the metroid games with like dark samus and stuff that could have really been something interesting you could have made a cool sci-fi movie with actual like scientific themes as well as like aliens and stuff like that um, and Bobby, maybe I'll never see his movie if it actually came out, but I do think that's a good direction to go for some video game movies. I think some are meant to be, to be animated. Um, and while I'd always be more interested in the, just the live action adaptation to see what they can do with it, I think, um, I think the doors might open more for Bobby's type of movies in the future with him saying how successful some of these have been. So I do think there's an audience and. I know a lot of people I work with talk about Attack on Titan, and I've never checked it out, but I I, I know there's an audience for it. So I'm going to go with Bobby as well, just because I feel like Joe missed, a, missed a, the plot that he could have uh, strongly gotten behind. Uh, and I think Bobby just overall told the story more actual fans of the franchise would want to see. So that is what I'm going to go with. I'm not that upset about it. I didn't know anything about Metroid other than the fact that it existed until about Friday when I started like research. <laughs> I knew too much about it and almost gave put too many details in, but I, I like yeah. my stuff. I, okay, it was to the point that I for I was thinking it was a fully made up thing, and because I like I've never been a big like game person, and I was thinking it was fully made up and not based on anything until about 10 minutes before we were playing Jackbox last Monday and Tristan and Bobby started talking about Metroid. I'm like, oh, I guess that's a... <laughs> I, like, remembered that that's a thing. Yeah. So, wasn't super confident going into that pitch. 
Understand. Okay. I'm, I'm on the board. I, I'll I do like your director choice, though, and and I think you did a good job finding someone who kind of looked like the the character, so not knowing even... much about it. So my and int- she and she would be a good uh, my, actress to kind of get my get intention. Out on the map. My intention was not finding someone that looked like the video game character. My intention was I wanted like someone who could do fights. So I just did like I yeah. typed in actresses who do their own stunts, expecting <laughs> I'd find like lesser known people, and she was like the one that always popped up, and then she just happened to look like Samus. So I was like, perfect. Yeah, I like the casting choice. I like the director. I think if you knew a little bit more about it, yeah. you probably could have put something more interesting together. But yeah, that was uh, that was a good win for Bobby. He needed that not to go down 3-0. So Joe, for the first time tonight, you will be choosing the next movie. Uh, I am going to decide to stick in the realm of video games, and I am going to choose Crash Bandicoot the movie, mm-hmm. and I will go first. All right, I love it. Joe, after saying he's not a big video game guy, going directly to... Crash Bandicoot. Well, I picked the game I actually did play as a kid, so... I'm excited for this one. There's a ton of huge cameos in this original movie, so I'm curious if they put a cameo or two in their movie. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, um, so Crash Bandicoot, the movie, came out in 1998. It's directed by Steve Barron. It got a 22% Rotten Tomatoes. And the description is, in an attempt to crash in on the popularity of their growing Crash Bandicoot video game franchise and inspire interest in their new home video format, the DVD. Sony produced one of the first straight-to-DVD movies with Crash Bandicoot, the movie. Crash is sent on a globe-trotting adventure to defeat Dr. Neil Cortex in order to rescue his true love, Coco. A high-energy performance from Gary Busey couldn't stop the extreme low-budget, strange deviations from the source material and the failure uh, to launch of DVD uh, players from causing Crash Bandicoot, the movie, to quickly run out of lives. <laughs> See what you did there. All right. So, Joe, who, who's going I'm, first? I'm going first. I'm going first. All right. Let's hear your take on Crash Bandicoot, the movie. All right. So, my director is Don Bluth, who is known for directing The Secret of Nim, uh, Five-O and American Tale, All Dogs Go to Heaven and Land Before Time, because... Uh, the rule I'm using is I am making this an 80s movie, specifically 1984, and retroactively making the video games based on my movie rather than having my movie based on the video games. So, uh, and so Secret of Nim came out in 82, An American Tale came out in 86, and he didn't have anything in between, so I just said this movie would be made in 84. Um, so for the role of Crash Bandicoot, uh, character doesn't really talk a whole lot in the game, so I just went with Kurt Russell. It was a few years after his voicing voice role in uh, The Fox and the Hound, and I thought he would fit that role. Uh, for his love interest, Tana, I went with Charlene Tilton, who uh, was on the show Dallas at the time. For Dr. Neo Cortex, I went with Leonard Nimoy. Uh, for the voice of Aku Aku, I went with Robert Guillaume, who would later go on to voice Rafiki. Uh, for Dr. Nitrous Brio, I went with Dwight Schultz, uh, who played Mad Dog Murdoch on the TV show The A-Team. For the role of Ripper Roo, I went with Dom DeLuise. And for Koala Kong, I went with Frank Walker, both of whom are kind of Don Bluth staples. So, for my movie. In a secluded archipelago, Dr. Neocortex, a mad scientist, uses his Evolve Array to genetically alter the local wildlife into an army of soldiers for the purpose of world domination. Among them is a bandicoot named Crash, who Cortex wants to be the leader of his army. Crash is rejected by the Cortex Vortex, a machine intended to brainwash him, and is cast by Cortex to the ocean below his castle. As 
Cortex prepares Tana, Crash's girlfriend, to be used in Crash's place. Crash washes up on a smaller island. Crash realizes he has to save Tana and defeat Cortex. Throughout his journey, he is aided by Aku Aku, a spirit guide. On his way back to Cortex, Crash defeats Ripperu and Koala Kong. When he reaches Cortex's stronghold, he faces Cortex's assistant, Dr. Nitrous Brio, who battles Crash by ingesting a potion to transform himself into a giant green monster. Crash rescues Tana and puts her on Cortex's airship. He arranges TNT throughout the castle and ignites it. Crash escapes to Cortex's airship while Cortex boards a hovercraft, hovercraft and attacks Crash with a plasma gun as his castle burns behind them. The two t shoot each other until no Dr. Neo Cortex falls from the sky. Tana embraces Crash as the two ride Cortex's airship into the sunset. And that is my pitch. I felt it kind of went with a lot of Don Blue stuff of like animals going against humans and uh, mind control, especially with like Secret of Nim being his previous movies and, you know, Gabriel's horn in um, All Dogs Go to Heaven. So I thought it was the perfect fit. And that is my pitch. Joe said a lot of animated movies I've never cared to watch. Bobby, um, let's hear your pitch. I went in a very different direction. Uh, to start out, my directors, we have, we've used them a million times, I believe it seems like, but I couldn't find anyone better after I wrote my pitch than to use Lord and Miller. Um, so they are going to be my directors. Uh, as for my rule, you'll get it from my cast. Um, my crash is going to be voiced by Danny DeVito. Uh, my Dr. Neo Cortex is going to be voiced by Charlie Day. My Coco Bandicoot Crash's younger sister, not love interest, which was in the original movie, apparently, um, is going to be voiced, voiced by Caitlin Olsen. <clears throat> uh, Aku Aku is going to be voiced by Glenn Howardin. And Uka Uka, the evil version of Aku Aku, is going to be voiced by Rob McElhenney. So I'm using the cast of a sitcom, and that is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, I gave more, uh, unlike my Metroid uh, pitch, I'm giving more of a synopsis with kind of a tone rather than an entire you know, description of the plot, but uh, Crash thinks that he had finally defeated Dr. Cortex and has retired to Philadelphia. Bored in his new life without an enemy, he is, he is a lazy drunk who's out of shape. When Dr. Cortex mysteriously returns with a plan to turn every big city in the U.S. into a jungle, Crash must face his old rival with a, with a bit of rust this time. Um, it's a self-aware movie about a real-life washed-up video game mascot because Crash Bandicoot is basically dead. They keep remaking like the old ones, essentially, but it's not really doing anything anymore uh, about literally being washed up and trying to get back into it. So it's a lot of, it's comedy about these old platformers that kind of faded because of, like the whole mascot video game mascot thing has kind of died down other than Mario. And that's pretty much the only one that actually makes money now. Even Sonic doesn't, but so you get him try as Danny DeVito. It's still, it's going to be a fat, you know, beer bellied crash bandicoot with Danny DeVito as the voice trying to jump on these boxes like they did in the old games, trying to get to, to uh, the crazy neocortex voiced by Charlie Day. Um, kind of a commentary on like some video games, but also like someone going through a midlife crisis because, you know, Lauren Miller throw like some themes that uh, are, you know, can a little bit more serious into a ridiculous comedy. They kind of do that sometimes. So that's what I'm going for. It's going to be more of a, com definitely a more comedic take on the character. All right. Interesting. I honestly don't have a ton of connection to the franchise of Crash Bandicoot outside of wearing like Crash Bandicoot gear in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. I don't. I've never really played the games. Um, so I'm glad I'm not making the final decision. That will be Tristan. Tristan, knowing more about the franchise, do you have any questions for them? 
surprisingly, I don't have a ton of questions. I think we both went for different takes, but I think I got a good idea of each of them. I'm shocked by the direction Bobby went, <laughs> but I think it'll be fun to hear him argue that that one. Uh, so I'm curious to just get to the arguments on this one. Uh, I'd love to hear as they're talking just a bit about like the Crash World, any Crash characters they brought in, anything like that they didn't get to mention in their pitch. But yeah, I just love the Crash World and the characters, so I'm excited to hear them argue about it. All right. My, my one question for Bobby is, you put this movie out, I'd go check it out because it has the cast of It's Always Sunny in it, but I don't know much about the franchise. Lord and Miller do a lot of good meta humor and a lot of stuff that kind of is funny if you know the characters. Will I get your movie's humor if I don't know anything about Crash Bandicoot? Yes, because the meta-ness of this is more of a video game, overall video game humor. So it's going to be the weird awkwardness you run into in platformers when something is is weird or like a jump is weird or something and you can't quite make it like that. It's it's more leaning into platforming, like video game uh, meta humor rather than straight up Crash Bandicoot. If you do know the characters, there's going to be those moments because they have to throw them in there, but it's not going to be enough to throw the general audience off. Got it. So more like uh, the Lego movie rather than yep. like um, Spider-Verse. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Um, all right. Well, that being said, so... Joe gave his pitch first, so he'll get um, one minute on the clock to kind of address things. All right, so yeah, my main thing is I feel like it's another one that's like sounds like a great SNL skit, sketch, sounds like a good like twenty minute video, but I just feel like for an hour long thing, watching like Crash Bandicoot be fat and struggle is just like I don't know if Crash Bandicoot fans want that. I don't know if old platform fans is like that's what they're going to see oh like i've been a crash bandicoot fan my whole life i finally get a, a crash bandicoot movie and he's old and fat and voiced by danny devito and can't really do anything anymore and i just i just don't know if like that's what's going to get people out i feel like crash bandicoot fans are going to be excited about it and if you're not if you weren't or like just like people that played those video games in the early 2000s and if you didn't play those video games in the early 2000s i, I feel like the meta-ness and like all the inside jokes just aren't gonna you know, cater yeah, to you and be seconds. interested to you. Where, like, the Lego movie is different. Like, everybody played Legos. Like, everybody knows Legos. And especially, like, the characters like Batman and, you know, Gandalf are so, like, iconic and just so much part of pop culture. And I just don't know if the uh, platform characters really were in that way. All right. Bobby, you got a minute to respond to that. I definitely want to hear your take on that because I'm curious how you're going to defend making such a not-crash game out of this. Yeah, so basically... Look, Crash Bandicoot, the, the fans of it are going to want a straight-up adaptation, but there's no, there's hardly any story in these games. It's a platformer where he's jumping on boxes with, with like, no talking and gets to this evil doctor. So to introduce something to where the heart of the movie, because Lord and Miller like to throw heart into their, their stories, especially like Lego Movie, is Aku Aku motivating Crash to get back to, to do something, to have a purpose, because he felt like he lost his purpose after his one thing that he focused his whole life on seemed like it was gone. And so there's your heart throughout the movie with Crash, so you do get actually like a good character with Crash Bandicoot. It's not just all humor. It's funny to see him do this, and there's going to be a lot of humor with video games um, thrown in there. Uh, and you do get characters, like I didn't mention there, uh, Crunch Bandicoot is going to be like the main uh, henchman um, in there, and like stuff like that. So there's going to be stuff from the game there's going to be all right to get to, to joe's i just think it sounds 
like Johnny said, like a lot of animated movies never fared to watch. I think that's kind of what he, what Joe is making this movie. Uh, it, it, because there's, there's, like I said, there's like no plot. I, I don't know what the heart of his to actually stay true to the game and like have it. What is the story? What other than just animals fighting an evil doctor secret of Nim had a lot more to it. I didn't get that out of yours. Um, it was very dark too. This doesn't, this is like a happy, you know, character that kind of just jumps around with that doesn't even speak hardly ever does. And, uh, like takes out an evil doctor. It's like very, very generic. So I wanted to throw something a lot more interesting into that story. All right. Uh, let's swap over. Joe, you got two minutes. Uh, give some defense and then some attack on Bobby's. All right. So I feel like a lot of the, like I was saying at the end of my pitch, like you railed on me for Alex Garland for Metroid. I feel like Don Bluth does fit a lot of like the kind of themes and the things that eventually that do happen in Crash Bandicoot with like the whole mind control aspect. And with like the you know testing on animals, and you can have more themes like these soldiers, and you know maybe doing what's right versus what you're told to do. And then I feel like also part of the reason I made this a like movie that the video games are later based on is we see like times before where they'll take a video game based on a franchise and like maybe change the tone or do something different with it. And I feel like since I'm retroactively making this movie come first, whether they change the video game or you know you know whether the video game has a different tone or not doesn't really matter because my movie comes out first but i feel like the story wise and all that i could see where they get the original crash video game from my movie and then as far as bobby's i just i just don't know like i still haven't quite figured out like who his movie is for like i just don't understand and and then as far as back to mind of like movies people don't see like secret of nim all dogs go to heaven and American Tale, like all those movies are super positively received. Like they have great reviews. I never see anyone like really negative, give a negative review. The people that seen them love them. And I feel like my Crash Bandicoot movie perfectly fits in there with, you know, this soldier fighting against his, you know, orders having to go against the evil doctor to rescue his girlfriend. I feel like has, you know, fits that Don Bluth kind of movie and story. And that's all I have to attack and defend. All right. Um, I'm making a final call on this Crash Bandicoot movie, if you couldn't tell. I'm a bit attached comparatively to Johnny. But do you got any questions for him, Johnny? Any last-second thoughts? And if they go to the, the what could be the final call of the match here? No, because we still have – It's if, if yeah, I we win, I, we, I'd still have to win one more. It's two to one. Oh, that's true. We, I, right. I was keeping track wrong. We're good. Not well, that close yet. Honestly, um, when Bobby said he was going a different direction and he picked a pair of directors that we've used before, I thought he was about to say Neville Demon Taylor, and it would have oh, been no. a much more different uh, type of film. Um, I think Lord Miller's kind of a chalk pick, especially if you're going for the type of humor and stuff Bobby is, but I think it's chalk for a reason they make those movies well. Um, it's tough because not being really connected to the franchise of the games and not being connected to any uh, like secret of nim or any of that um it, it's a tough call in terms of what would interest me but personally like not knowing much about it if they made bobby's movie i think i could go watch it and enjoy it and get the humor it, you know because like he said like not making the jumps and him being kind of fat and falling short like that you don't need to have played crash bandicoot to get that video game reference i think you could replace bobby's movie with donkey kong or a million other gaming franchises that maybe don't have 
great stories, but they haven't been able to track recently. And I think that's a cool kind of meta humor of like kind of failed video game franchises or stuff they couldn't really bring back and get on board with. Um, so I think Bobby's humor will have enough for, for me. And I, I personally wouldn't go check out Joe's movie. Um, it was made in the eighties. It was before I was born. I don't care to go see movies in that style. I guess it's not exactly my type. If it was like a Studio Ghibli type of thing, I'd probably be more interested in it, but I don't really care about Joe's director or any of his work, honestly. So I'm going to go Bobby just based on my personal interest, but I'm interested to hear what Tristan has to say because I think he's more interested in, in those animated movies and in the franchise. So it could be completely opposite of what I say. Yeah, I'm split on both of these pitches. I think Joe gave a good version did, of the movie did, he was trying to... Did Bobby get his two mm -hmm. minutes? I was just kind of thinking that. I don't think Bobby ever got his two minutes. Bobby got his two minutes. Bobby didn't get his one minute. I think Tristan gave – Joe got one minute. Bobby got two minutes. Joe got yeah. two minutes, and then we just made the that, call. But I don't think we needed to hear anything else personally. Right, yeah. If I mean, if you're leaning to Joe, then I feel like I could make some defenses. But, I mean, if you can – if you just want to call it. Yeah, like... I was going to say it. I feel like I just call it there. <laughs> All right. I would give Bobby the two minutes to defend himself, but he's already – uh, gonna win it for me here. I uh, think. Huh. Uh, I think I saw the direction Joe was going for, but it didn't necessarily click for me personally. And I think the potential of the Lord and Miller parody take on Crash Bandicoot, I think, is pretty great. It also has the potential to go really badly, like the fat Dan DeVito falling on himself could be something that's like really not funny. But I think Lord and Miller are the directors, so you can make that work. And you're not giving it mm -hmm. to the directors of like Paul Blart, Mockoff, or something. You're giving it to the directors who can pull off that kind of humor. And like you said, pull off a mix between specific crash humor and also just like general video game humor. And as we get into the era of video game movies starting to take over a little bit, I think it's a good like almost Deadpool level kind of take on the genre. So I'm going for Bobby on that. All right. My mind's been scared okay. on these timers this, this round. We'll be back on to it next round. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep track too, like a little, at least to like because I, like... I thought that same thing. I'm like, wait, Joe started. And Joe finished. I was like trying then, to figure yeah. out if he accidentally get, didn't give you your two minutes or he was get voting for you anyway, so it didn't matter. And I was just like... Yeah. It was... Uh, I kind of noticed that, but I was like, okay, I don't know what's going on here. But yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. we're getting used to the format. You know, this is why we're doing some forgotten movies, kind of, uh, you know, yeah. working out the kinks. But, all right. So, that means we have a tie game. Two to two, and Joe gets to pick the next movie. All right, I'm gonna go with the Bone Wars, and I, I'll let Bobby go first, I guess. Okay. Sorry, for a second. What movie did you say? Bone Wars. Yeah, I've been waiting to get to the Bone Wars. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, so the Bone Wars came out in 1993. Uh, it got a 52% around Tomatoes. It was directed by Warren Beatty. Um, I won't pull an anchor man here or Tristan editing uh, <laughs> some things. The story of the rivalry in discovering dinosaur bones between the wealthy but arrogant off-mail Charles March, played by Marilyn Brando, and the former child prodigy Edward Drinker Cope, played by Jeff Bridges. Despite having two legendary actors, the movie bombed coming out the weekend after Jurassic Park. And a movie... With real dinosaurs, uh, kind of took the attention away from the movie about the real-life uh, paleontologists uh, in the 1800s. So I'm interested to hear what uh, 
direction you guys went with it. And this is a story that I'm super interested in. So I want it to be two great pitches. And I think Joe said he's going first. No, no Bobby's going to go first. Bobby's going first. All right, Bobby, what do you got for the Bone Wars? Did First off, did Tristan type La La Land in there? Is that where you're messed up with Warren Beatty? No, he typed he typed Johnny Sucks after the directed by Warren Beatty. So Alright. Um so the fact that you're actually very interested in the story might kill me. But that's okay, because I like my movie. Um will. so uh the Bone Wars, my director is gonna be Taika Waititi. Um, and my rule is that I'm going to be putting an actor on the map, and that is going to be Harvey Guillen, who is uh, Guillermo in De La Cruz in What We Do in the Shadows, the TV show. Uh, hasn't done a lot other than like some TV work, but I think he's really funny and really good in that in that role. Um, uh, my other uh, my other paleontologist in the movie is going to be someone that Taika has worked with uh, on Green Lantern, and then also in the upcoming. Um, free guy and that is ryan reynolds so i have harvey again and ryan reynolds my two leads um and then i have taika waititi who's doing a lot of voices and i will get into that in my pitch oh no (laughs) 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 all right so right (laughs) all right let's get to it um my rival paleontologist played by harvey again and ryan reynolds are on the hunt for dinosaur bones back uh around when the original like was taking place uh, on a trip to Texas near the Mexican border, the rivals meet and simultaneously discover a massive dinosaur fossil. Uh, what was odd is that the bones were glowing an odd color. Uh, after a flash of light, neither are sure what happened and go back to fighting about whose discovery the bones actually were. Suddenly, the bones start to move and warp, uh, and a skeleton dinosaur walks towards them. <laughs> so, yeah, skeleton dinosaur comes to life, um, speaking as if it just woke up from a long nap, voiced by Taika Waititi. This leads to the bone wars between the two rival paleontologists, um, both getting... So they basically have now somehow gotten the powers from these bones to resurrect fossils into living skeletons. This leads to bo- the bone wars between them, uh, which with Ryan Reynolds kind of instantly... He's kind of the more unlikable one that is like the greedier, like right away, oh, I'm like the bad guy kind of deal. Harvey Dien's character is more like he's the sympathetic guy who doesn't know what to do, but he has to keep up and slowly gets greedier and greedier kind of as it goes. You kind of see him making a little bit of a turn. Um, And from there, it's more of a, like, it's a wild comedy with, uh, with, you know, skeleton dinosaurs, all of them voiced by Taika Waititi, like I said. So they all have the same voice, no matter what dinosaur it is, uh, no matter what size, no matter what, you know, what it looks like. Um, They each recruit a team and have allies on each side, and they ride the skeletons, flying them, et cetera, in a wild comedy, action comedy. In the end... Um, Guillen, uh, Harvey's character realizes his greed and power has turned him into something that he never wanted to be he gives a very heartfelt long speech to Ryan Reynolds' character saying they shouldn't use their powers and you think it's gonna like Ryan Reynolds isn't gonna listen and do anything he looks at him and goes yeah sure makes sense to me and that whole huge like heartfelt speech kind of worked and you get that weird Taika humor twist where it's like oh and that's it and so they decide not to use their powers anymore uh, and walk off because that's too much power for any human so yeah, I made mine a literal bone wars between skeleton dinosaurs because uh, I don't really care about the paleontologist aspect as much because we've gotten stories like Jurassic Park and a lot of things that have explored paleontologist stuff in a different way. And I think this, um, if you put it out now with a straight-up story of them, would not come across as a very interesting story to put to screen. Now that I we like actually the have them in wars. museums. 
Yeah, literal Bone Wars. Johnny is muted, but and I feel I, like he is disparaging everything that uh, I just yes. said. I am. First of all, uh, there's no such thing as flying dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are land walking animals. What about a the, pterodactyl? You know what a pterodactyl? But you know what a pterodactyl people, people is a classify, pterosaur. People classify that as a dinosaur. dinosaur. So it's it's Very everything from the everything from the know. era. Everything from yes, the era. I understand. I just want to correct the statement: flying dinosaurs, which is not true doesn't exist and the new jersey right. park is pretty cool i saw the trailer during the imax screening of fast and furious that's all i had to say everything about that sentence made me angry um all right joe uh i hope you stuck uh in reality a little more than bobby <laughs> did i'm gonna be honest let's hear it all right so uh First of all, I'll play my director, and that should probably tell you more of the direction I went. My director is James Mangold, and the rule I use is to turn one into a miniseries. So that's Perfect. My Othniel March is going to be played by Hugh Jackman, who worked with Mangold on Logan and the Wolverine. My Edward Cope is going to be played by Ben Foster, who worked with him on 310 to Yuma. And then the character of Joseph, I don't really know how to say his last name, but Lady or Leady or something like that. Uh, it's going to be played by Richard E. Grant, who worked with Mangold on Logan as well. So I decided for my role to make this a miniseries. It's an interesting story that spans over 15 years. And I picture it as kind of like a six-episode, you know, hour-piece series on, like, HBO or something like that. So my first episode is about their early years and seeing how they grew up. Arthur Marsh grew up poor, and Edward Cope was a rich Quaker. We also see that March was calm while Coke. Cope had a quick temper. The two meet in the mid-1860s in Berlin, with Edward even staying with March. The two work together when they return to America, even naming species they find after each other. Episode 1 ends with March paying the landowner of one of their digs that any fossils his men find be sent to him and not Cope. Episode 2 focuses on Cope's reconstruction of the Pleiosaur. After his reconstruction, Cope submits his findings to the American Philosophical Society. Then March sees it and realizes Cope... Uh, put the head on the wrong end and put it at the end of the tail. Neither one admits they are wrong, so they bring in paleontologist Joseph Lady to determine the answer. And Lady says Cope is wrong. Cope tries to buy back all of his papers, but Lady exposes Cope's cover-up at the next American Philosophical Society meeting, which is the official end of March and Cope's friendship. Uh, my next few episodes follow their rivalry as they pay people off to get bones sent to them and not the other as they spy on each other and try to one-up the other. The two are rushing to classify their species as fast as possible, with both knowingly classifying the same species as different things. There would even be a scene of March uh, slipping away from his camp and returning with a cartload of fossils, narrowly escaping a tribe of Native Americans. In the Cumma Bluff digs, the two even resort to destroying smaller fossils so they don't end up in the other's hands. They also fill in their dig sites with dirt and rock. The final episodes take place after the digs when the two have run out of money. Cope, who had kept a journal over the last 15 years, wrote down all of the mistakes and misdeeds March had done against science. He gives the journal to a newspaper friend. The two fight in the papers for years. March, who lived extravagantly, is losing money while Cope is becoming more popular in the scientific community. Cope is elected president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science the same year that March steps down as the head of the Academy of Sciences. The final episode goes until the end of their rivalry, which lasted until Cope's death in 1897. Uh, by that time, both men were broke. Cope is sick and sells part of his fossil collection and rents out one of his houses to make ends meet. Marsh mortgages his house and asks Yale for his salary so he can live. Cope, wanting to prove one last time he was better than March, 
uh, asked for a skull to be donated to science and have his brain measured to prove it was bigger than March's, but March uh, never offers his brain to science. Basically, my uh, miniseries follows the rivalry of two men who basically risk everything they have just to prove that they're better than the other with dinosaur digs and fossils and everything in the background. And that is my pitch. Two different directions. Johnny, how are you feeling right now? How much are you doing? So here's the thing. Dan. I'm, I'm going to yeah. be honest. Just if you, if you hate, if you like, if you like the original story, cause that sounded incredibly boring to me, you're going to pick Joe. So that go for it. Here's, like that's fine. Here's, here's my thing. When I when I wanted to do this movie, I thought the direction you could really go with this and make it interesting is maybe not as exciting on paper as it would be on screen. Like if you read someone the prestige of two rival magicians giving everything they can in the hopes of just topping the other one, that is the basis of this story. And that's what I think Joe really nailed. Um, and I think that would make for a really exciting miniseries about something that most people could find boring i think he picked the best possible director to do it good cast and tells the real story and bobby's is nonsense i don't know what bobby's is <laughs> bobby's is it's just fun. dinosaur bones running around and i don't <laughs> like that choice for taika watiti i would have liked it better if you just stuck with that and maybe had nicholas cage in yours and just went full ridiculous i don't like that maybe taika wasting his time doing bobby's movie so that's fine i'd go with Joe, because that's more of what I was looking for, for sure, with this choice. So, good work, Joe. Thank you. Bobby, try again. I time. said before, you were not on the stream yet, but I said, we were talking vaguely about these movies, and I'm like, there's one, or maybe two, that if, if they are very interested in the original story, I'm not even going to have like be able to fight. <laughs> so I think what, what helped you with Metroid, and honestly, Crash Bandicoot, um, it, you know different for different reasons kind of hurt you in this one but yep. yeah, i think this could be a really cool uh mini series and, and when we did that rule when i was looking over these i was like oh this one would be a really really cool mini series on like a streaming service um yeah and interest people so and joe went full dad movie with it so i respect well, the one thing I... giant fighting dinosaurs and one didn't so you know i feel yeah. like the one with the giant dinosaurs is probably the one that i'd go for but yeah, well, like my thing with this i also is... didn't know who picked this and thought that if oh. again it's like you know <laughs> my thing was like i just wanted to capture kind of the dynamic between uh matt damon's character matt damon's character and christian bale's character in ford versus ferrari that was kind of my yeah choice for why i picked uh yeah it's the same thing your sounds very good i just like ford ford v ferrari rush uh the prestige that's kind of the story of real life of these two in terms of just like rivals um that you know between them discovered over like 120 different dinosaurs and were the two like biggest paleontologists and i think that's a cool cool story so um, yeah watch the original movie so to try to yeah to try to stay alive here um i'm going to go with my shortest pitch but the one that i really love the tone and kind of style that i'm putting into it so i'm going to go with cryptid hunters okay that's where i would have went right. so we'll see how that yeah. goes okay. cryptid hunters was directed by mick g in 2013 and somehow had a positive rating on rotten tomatoes at 67 percent um it's probably a rare feat for the director um 
Adapted from the book of the same name, Cryptid Hunters follows teen siblings Grace, played by Shailene Woodley, um, and Marty O'Hara, played by Lucas Hedges, who are sent to live with their eccentric Uncle Wolf, an anthropologist living on a remote island secretly populated by cryptids. Various creatures thought to be fictional or extinct, um, possibly dinosaur bone uh, people walking around, compete with ancient rivalries, or to complete with ancient rivalries, secret lab bases, and giant monsters, Cryptid Hunters is somewhat notable for later career of its stars, but bombed on release thanks to laughable effects and the decision to uh, up the teen dystopian drama in reshoots in response to the Hunger Games. So Shailene Woodley, unfortunately, has a career of failing at uh, teen, uh, what yeah. is this, like... Dystopian future. Divergent teen book yeah young adult novels ya novels movies yeah they uh she's not have a great career of that but she excels in everything else she does so hopefully they don't put her in the next uh percy jackson movie um all right so that being said that was the only one i could think of i was trying to think of the other one artemis fowl there There you you go. go um who is going first i'll go first it's short all right bobby short but sweet yep so I really did the premise when I saw that because I was not familiar with this movie and I saw the premise. I'm like, that actually sounds really interesting. I don't really want to change up too much about that, but I really want to give it a better tone, a better visual style, a better flair. Uh, and I think there's no better way to do that than to make this a 1980s movie, specifically 1987, and be directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, reteaming from Dark Crystal. So we're going to get a lot of puppet work in this movie. And I think that gives the creatures a very good uh kind of look for for what i'm going for my uh, marty is going to be played by river phoenix um who was 17 year old 17 years old at the time after stand by me um my uh grace is going to be played by mia sarah who was sloan from ferris bueller's day off one year after that movie and uncle wolf the crazy uncle is going to be played by gary Busey because he was still with it at the time but still could give a crazy kind of um eccentric performance um, so I think that he is kind of a perfect, uh, crazy old, un- crazy uncle kind of, kind of character at that time. But like I said, I'm going to keep the plot generally the same. It's these two teens that go visit their crazy uncle on an Island that reduce the teen dystopian drama stuff. And it's more of a adventure fantasy movie of them trying to figure out why, um, these creatures exist on this Island kind of, you know, uh, and, and it's more of an adventure with their uncle of, of them trying to traverse the, everything and uh kind of get him out of there and it's a more it's a a lot of puppetry and atmosphere everything that jim henson and frank oz do best uh with a lot of the creatures and that's what i'm going for all right not a ton of plot there but i like the direction that you've gone Joe, what do you got for All right, so, uh, Cryptid Hunters? I went in a very different direction than the original and a very, very different direction than whatever direction Bobby went in. So uh, for my rule is where my director comes into play because my director is Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> and might not sound like the best move, but it, 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 it'll make sense when I give my pitch, I think, hopefully. Will so, it, Joe? My Dr. Travis Wolf is Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, the role of Ted Bronson, who was in the original book but didn't make it into the movie, is going to be played by Jude Law. Uh, the role of Noah Blackwood will be played by Jeff Bridges. Grace O'Hara will be played by McKenna Grace. And Marty O'Hara will be played by Jacob Tremblay. 
So the book was a kid's book and obviously told from the kid's perspective. And to make it more of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I will tell it from Joaquin Phoenix's character, Dr. Travis Wolf's perspective. And a lot of it in uh, his movies, he explores like it's character studies of people in different fields. Like Boogie Nights is like the porn industry. And then you have uh, Punch Drunk Love is like this guy that sells like toilet stuff. And then you have uh, uh, the whatever the one where he's a uh, tailor that shitty movie that i didn't care for phantom thread phantom yeah, thread phantom there we go thread. and so basically i wanted like this character study of this guy that would go and hunt these fictional monsters like the chupacabra and sasquatch and maybe any dinosaurs that are still alive so i thought that could be kind of an interesting darker dynamic for paul thomas anderson for a t- Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So my movie is about Dr. Travis Wolf, a mysterious hermit living off on his own in the middle of the jungle. He only has one friend, his childhood best friend, Ted Bronson. One day, Wolf gets a letter saying his sister and brother-in-law have died and his niece and nephew are coming to live with him. Uh, Wolf is not happy because, you know, but because he loves his sister, he is willing to take them in. Wolf makes the kids aware he has no need for family and he is only doing this out of obligation. He tells the kids about cryptids, mysterious animals thought to be fictional or extinct, and the kids think he's crazy but begin to bond with their uncle and he begins to bond with them. Uh, With reports of a dinosaur cryptid in the area that Wolf has been looking for his whole life, he decides to take the kids along. While on the hunt, they meet Noah Blackwood, Wolf's longtime rival. Noah takes a liking to the kids, especially Grace, saying uh, saying she looks just like, or looked just like his daughter. Uh, Noah is a lot warmer than Wolf, and Wolf tells the kids he may seem nice, but to be wary of him. After a run-in with a dinosaur cryptid, the group gets separated. The kids end up with Noah Blackwood, and Wolf is alone. Wolf, needing help, visits his friend Ted. This is where it's revealed that Grace isn't Wolf's niece, uh, but his daughter. Uh, You see, many years ago, Wolf fell in love with Rose Blackwood, Noah's daughter. She got pregnant, but when Rose died in childbirth... Wolf knew he wasn't the father material and gave his child, Grace, to his sister to raise as his own. It's also revealed that Noah has sexually abused Rose, his own daughter, her whole childhood. And so my movie is overall about Wolf going out to rescue his daughter and nephew in the jungle and ending with a showdown between Wolf and Noah, where the kids ultimately get away, Noah's died, but Wolf's fate is left a mystery. And that is my pitch. All right. Well, Tristan... Tristan's going to be making the final call here, and he knows a little more about the source material than I than I do. Um, do you have any questions for them? I don't have a ton of questions. I once got punched in the face over this book because I got in an argument with someone when I was in like sixth grade, and they they were very passionate, I guess, about the character they liked more than my character, so they punched me in the face, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I guess I guess we're getting a fight over this Cryptic Hunters book that no one has read apparently except for us that but... no one's heard about except you." <laughs> Yeah, I have some interesting memories with this. It was one of those kind of like formative kind of fun, sloppy books that I read when I was a kid. And I think Bobby's definitely leans more towards like the original idea of what the book is and whereas Joe's is a bit more of a different take. But I'm I'm liking both pitches. I want to hear them argue through what they've got. All right. Um, I guess my one question, because I can picture Bobby's movie. He, he told me about the puppets and you have Henson and, and Oz and stuff. So I get that. Joe... Does your movie have creatures? And if Paul Thomas Anderson is directing it, how would those creatures 
look visually? Uh, so mine is more, because, uh, like, the main one in the book is this dinosaur they're hunting. So it is, like, this giant lizard and, like, or like relatively, like, human, I would say, like, human size. That's maybe, like, this raptor or something that never actually went extinct. And you get, like, a quick look at it. But mine is more like an examination of the type of people that would like go out and try to hunt these mysterious creatures rather than about the creatures themselves because i feel like that's more of like a paul thomas anderson type avenue that he would explore rather than like oh here's a movie with a bunch of creatures all right also dinosaurs not lizards (laughs) anyway let's go with um we got one one minute on the clock for bobby and then one minute to joe and then two minutes each Let's I remember got it right that. this time, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be all right. So, all right, Bobby, you got one minute. Okay, you ready, Tristan? I'm ready. One minute. All right. So, Joe, what I have for you is I think that Paul Thomas Anderson, and for a choice with a for a book like this, for a story like this, is not necessarily the best choice, in my opinion. I think that um, it leaves it does two things. I think wrong. I think. I think if it is Paul Thomas Anderson, then there is no creature. The, the guy is crazy and he's hunting them. They never, you never show them, never acknowledge that they're real, but they're trying to uh, connect with this person that is hunting them instead of actually having the lizard or whatever creature that it is that they're fighting. Um, but then because of that, you then lose a lot of the audience that for a movie called Cryptid Hunters that is based on something with creatures and stuff like, and, and, you know, big fantastical things to make it a very grounded drama like that, I think loses a lot of that audience. So with mine, I think it captures all, all the imagination that can come with a story like this. I think visually with the puppets with Jim Henson and Frank Oz, you get a much better um, picture of what, what it, visually it's going to be like and enthrall you into that world, into this island, you into the universe. Seconds, and uh, I think that is a better take for this type of movie. All right, Joe, you got about one minute. All right, so number one, it's hard to attack uh, Bobby's because it's basically all I know is it's a movie with puppets. So um, my thing is, like, as far as, like, the story, like, I stuck to kind of the original story of the book. I just kind of flipped it and made it, you know, more adult by flipping the perspective. Where yours, I, I don't even know. Like, you say, oh, people that see the title Cryptid Hunters are gonna you know be turned off but like anyone that read cryptid hunters they're like what is this is if does this have anything to do with the book i don't know because i don't know what your movie is at all i just know there's puppets in your movie and that's kind of that's kind of it jim henson directed it and that's really it's hard to attack a movie that barely is a thing as far as what you said about mine is i feel like a lot of those answers will be answered in the trailer as far as like what the cryptid hunters thing and the you know dinosaur is it real or not you, the, the fact that it's like this large lizard it's like is this even an extinct creature or is he just going crazy over a random lizard like is this a dinosaur cryptid or is it a lizard is our uncle crazy i feel like that's definitely an aspect in my movie i'm gonna cut you out there joe i'm gonna swap back over now to bobby for his two minutes finally getting your two minutes there right. bobby i so, want to hear a bit of the defense on what joe just attacked you on on not having yep. much of a plot in your pitch so just give us a little bit as you're going a bit of an idea of what the plot is of your movie a bit yeah i mean basically what i said is i the original plot of it i really did enjoy they just kind of like you said they so it is it's following more of the story of the book of these teens visiting the island and all that it's it's keeping the general story of the original which we do a lot um where you don't need to give a a description by description thing of what happens. Um, so similar plot to yours, but actually sticking in the vein of what the movie should be, 
as far as uh, visually, as far as the creatures, as far as a, a, an enthralling uh, uh, visual movie where you get this fantasy island, essentially, with all these different creatures. You get to see different things like dinosaurs, like unicorns, like made-up creatures that Jim Henson and Frank Oz would be great at coming up with, like little gremlins, things that could be a little creepy and dark, like a lot of different creatures just thrown in. That Because I think giving them the creativity to make any creature that you want that is a made-up fictional character on this island um, gives a lot of advantages for Jim Henson and Frank Oz visually and for storytelling. I think that River Phoenix is an amazing lead. It's, you know, obviously too bad that we lost him at a young age. But him, it, he would be a, a fantastic lead for the movie. Gary Busey gives uh, a lot of very good performances and can be be a little wacky and off and can be that kind of crazy uncle who's been on this island. Uh, and then Mia Sarah is also, again, very a very good actress and, all, and would draw people in after Ferris Bueller. People look back on her finally, for sure, on her on her work in the 80s. You so, got 30 seconds, Bobby. Yeah, so I think more, Joe, you... I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson for a movie called Cryptid Hunters, I, I just don't think it all fits together in my head of what this movie really is and that it would actually be a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and something that he would be drawn to um, versus something that would be a little bit more fantastical and adventurous like uh, like the original story. All right. We're strapping over to Joe. Joe, you've got two minutes. I definitely want to hear your response to your, his uh, his thing about this not necessarily feeling like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and being kind of a weird hybrid of these two things. So give us some defense on that and then some attacks on Bobby's. All right, so one thing is in the original movie and in the book that it's based off of, there aren't really hardly any cryptids in this movie. There really is just like the one dinosaur they're looking after. So if you're saying it's following the book, following the original movie, and there's all these creatures, it's like, well, then you're not following the original movie and you know the original story and i just feel like uh yours especially with like all of these creatures don't fit the story of the original with like the whole oh it turns out their uncle is their is the girl's dad and that whole narrative and then noah blackwood being you know her grandfather and that whole dynamic i don't know if that really fits i don't know if i see mia sarah and gary Busey as father and daughter i don't know if that fits and then as far as the paul thomas anderson i feel like i've defended that with the aspect of it's you know my movie isn't really about the cryptids because the cryptids don't really play into uh the book and the movie that much it's more about the you know hunters the movie's not called cryptids the book isn't called cryptids it's called cryptid hunters because that's who it focuses on and i feel like uh Paul Thomas Anderson would do a good job of focusing on these like crazy ass people who go off looking for these mythological and potentially extinct creatures. I feel like he could show the family dynamic and that whole thing with this uncle having to take care of this girl that's revealed to be his daughter. And, and I think, uh, it could be interesting to see like Jeff Bridges, you see him initially in the movie and you think, Oh, this is like this fun, kind hearted guy. It'd be nice to see him with, you know, I wish the kids could go to him. And then it's revealed that he's actually like a super hardcore creeper and, you got 30 seconds, Joe. And to see Joaquin Phoenix have that turn where he has to go and rescue these kids that he didn't want and ultimately potentially die for it, I feel like could be a good Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and that's my pitch, or that's my defense. All right. Uh, any final thoughts or questions on it, Johnny, before I uh, give my final call here? I'll say this. Um, I think when they first gave their pitches, I was like, this is – you know, Bobby's game to lose. It seems like that is more the style of what the what the book and, and things feel like with the Jim Henson puppets and stuff. But I think Joe did a really good job defending his movie and arguing for it. Um, 
And it, he almost won me over in the end, but I do think I side more towards my gut feeling initially with, with Bobby because he did bring up some more more points. I'm not familiar with the source material. Um, I haven't seen the, the movie or read the books, but I think Bobby's just sounds like being more like the Dark Crystal would be something I think would be more fun. And while I kind of like the idea of Paul Thomas Anderson doing like a maybe this hunter is kind of crazy like is this thing real or not i think it has its base but i don't necessarily think it fits if you're basing it off like a young adult novel so i think at the end of the day bobby's oh, seat would satisfy more day. more audience so i'm gonna go i'm gonna go bobby on that yeah I, I was feeling similarly at the beginning i thought when bobby first gave his pitch and then john uh and joe said his director choice i was like oh that's a wild rule pick i feel it's gonna be bobby's kind of runaway win here as joe was going he definitely gave some good points and i think he made it feel like a good paul thomas anderson movie but i think it's a little bit of a mixed bag for me because i do think that in a weird way joe captured the book a little bit <laughs> better in certain ways like it's about like the people and necessarily the creatures because there's not a ton of creatures in the book but i almost feel like bobby improved upon the book in that way like he took the potential of the book the potential of this island full of creatures and really like lead into that and i think joe's surprisingly as he was going became more and more and more like something that i would like to see <laughs> but i think bobby just very very slightly uses the potential of the premise a bit more so than joe does and i'm leaning towards bobby on that i get a good picture of the creatures and being able to lead into that potential of the creatures on this island and I think Joe sounds really good, but I'm giving a narrow victory to Bobby. All right, cool. Yeah, um, when when uh, we were choosing these movies, and Tristan chose this, I had no idea what this movie was, and then it was based on real, real books. Um, yeah, yeah but, I figured out know, what some this. People are passionate. I figured out what this book was about by reading an Amazon review for the book, where this person that read it like broke it down like chapter by chapter because I couldn't find anything else about this book anywhere, and I was like, "Oh, this actually this book's basically a character study of the their uncle through the kid's eyes," and I'm like, "I'll just do it through Paul Thomas Anderson's eyes." Yeah, I recently looked at the book on Wikipedia, and there's literally nothing. That yeah. It's a period. A blank space. It's a dot. I just I just looked at it. <laughs> Well, yeah. glad you guys put the research in, except yeah. for Bobby kind of. Um, but honestly, it would be a travesty if we did this episode and it didn't come down to their great, the Frosted Flakes story being the the deciding Con pitch. Congratulations, Game Joe. Seven. Uh, let's wait on that. <laughs> I did not expect you were going to get to Game 7 on this one. I thought for sure there were points where Bobby was running running away with it there. It was been yeah, both Joe ways. Was I was down too. Well, Joe was up, and then Bobby yeah, was... started fighting. I don't back think I've ever been Joe... down. I think I've only been winning yeah. or tied. Same. I think that's right. Yeah. So you know, I'm. This uh, is also my shortest. Maybe Bobby's pitch, first lead of the night could be this. I'm. I'm excited because I know what rules you guys have left. I'm and looking for. And it will make Joe's for a pretty is. different one. So. Uh, yeah, I know. They are great. Is, so. They're great. The Frosted Flakes story came out in 2002. The director uh, was George Hickenlooper. Uh, got a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. They're great is based on the real-life story of John and Will Kellogg. Sure. And their journey to create the market Frosted Flakes and other Corn Flakes cereal. Um, 
The film is centered around the uh, warring brothers' battle against partner-turned-rival C.W. Post and baseless attacks from an increasingly health-conscious fake news media starring John Voight and financed by the Kellogg Company. Uh, their great has been heavily criticized as corporate propaganda for significantly altering history as well as portraying the Kellogg's as uh, faultless heroes. So glad this was ahead of its time in 2002 with fake news and uh, painting these pictures. So uh, Joe lost that one, so he gets to decide just who goes first. Um, I'll just start. Um, just to <laughs> we, rip we, the band-aid off. Our, our, based on your rule, we actually might have relatively similar pitches as far as like tone. So let's see. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you, my director is David Wayne. Uh, who you know has directed uh, various movies like uh, Stupid, a Feudal and Stupid Gesture, and he's also behind a lot of the uh, Wet Hot American Summer uh, movies, movie and shows. And the rule I use is one must have a cast of a sitcom. I, I've spent most of my research finding a sitcom that had a cast that fit this, and I picked the sitcom that is like kind of chalk and kind of obvious but ultimately the only one i could find where i could find guys that i felt like could play brothers and you know just was the right age range and whatever and the sitcom i chose was the office so for will kellogg i have ed helms and for john harvey kellogg i have steve carell and then in the role of cw post i have james spader because uh, i didn't want it to just feel like an office thing james spader was in a number of episodes but he wasn't like one of the leads it's not like a john krasinski or something and so my movie is going to be a straight-up comedy where the 1980 movie airplane was essentially a line-for-line remake of the dramatic movie zero hour but done comedically i want to do the same for their great a frosted flake story uh the kelloggs were absurd crazy people who made cereal there is no way to make an entertaining movie about them that isn't a comedy and i want steve carell to play john harvey kellogg as a bumbling lunatic so when it goes towards the ends of the movie and he is talking about eugenics and sterilization the audience believes he should be sterilized and the moment is seen as absurd and crazy and not completely terrifying uh also the scenes of him making cereal so people are less horny will be played comedically rather than seriously because that's the only way to make that work no one can believably watch a guy make cereal to make people less horny and be like, oh, this is great dramatic stuff going on here. Uh, James Spader will play C.W. Post as an over-the-top conniving evil villain in a movie about cornflakes. And then Will Kellogg, played by Ed Helms, can be more of the straight man who is the plucky underdog in a world full of crazies. And that's my pitch. It's, for the most part, a line-by-line reading of the original played you know, comedically uh, with a few more different added jokes. And that's my pitch. Because this plot and movie is absurd. All right. Okay. That had some things in it. Bobby, what do you got for us? All right. So we had similar thoughts in that the story is ridiculous, especially because reading the original premise, it played with history a ton, especially calling it their great the Frosted Flake story and focusing it on Will Kellogg and John Kellogg, who died before Frosted Flakes technically existed. Um, cornflakes they did make they made a lot of healthy cereals that was like what kellogg did to start they they started out and there's like part of a healthy balanced breakfast um so to make this they're great the frosted flake story about uh will kellogg and john kellogg i'm basically saying with my premise and i'm making mine a mini series what if they started making all the sugary cereals first um back in like 1906 and put out all these crazy like frosted flake stuff instead of the healthy things what 
kind of how would that go and amp it up to craziness. So it's going to be show run by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. It's going to be, um, uh, it's going to star Dave Franco as Will Kellogg, Seth Rogen as John Kellogg. Um, you're going to get a lot of like the similar kind of actors that show up in their movies as like other small characters, but then also CW Hill is going to be played by Jonah Hill. Um, so it's definitely, it's a clear or post. Did I say the wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Post is going to be played by Jonah Hill. Yeah. I said, I said the actor's last name, but uh, (laughs) yeah, pretty much. But again, it's a comedy that plays with history in a similar premise to the original Will and John Kellogg journey to make and sell frosted flakes. But in the early 1900s, when Kellogg founded it, founded it in, um, in real life, like I said, they did not exist till 1952 year after John died. Uh, the premise is what if the first, so I kind of went through this already, but, um, this shows, so they, it shows them in the, in the beginning, kind of trying out these wild cereal ideas. Like their ideas is like, we, we want to make things that like kids will definitely like, everyone's going to love this because it just tastes so sugary and great. Um, but they're going to have a lot of wild kind of ideas with it uh, before they land on their normal stuff. But it's going to then involve children getting addicted to it and acting as if it's like a drug, getting backlash from parents uh, who complain that their children are going through withdrawal withdrawals when they don't have the cereal. Um, the structure of it is the first episode is introducing them and their wild ideas. Episode two would be them deciding on Frosted Flakes eventually. Like after it shows all their crazy experiments and stuff, and then it, it, it lands on Frosted Flakes as the first one they're going to push. Episode three is the world is uh, introducing it to the world and it becoming like massively popular overnight and they become like superstars with this cereal. Um, episode four is then the realization that the kids are getting addicted to it and the backlash from the parents and like some fun scene, like, you know, weird scenes with, with kids kind of begging for the cereal and all that. Uh, John and Will in episode five get into like a major fight before accidentally sending all of their ideas into a production line, which pop out all the Kellogg brand cereals that we now know. Um, and after this kind of magical moment where you have like this awe inspiring, like there's frosted flakes, there's whatever the rest of there's our tricks and here's this and all other Kellogg cereals. Um, the, uh, a mob outside of all the angry parents set the, set the building on fire and you, and the last shot of the, um, of the show is, uh, all of the sugary creations burning up, uh, in this building. And it's just kind of a, it's just a weird bizarre because there's no way to tell this story, this real story and make it interesting. So they're essentially big time drug dealers to children is kind of the, like the joke that they're getting at in the, in the show where it's sugar. Um, and they started just making all these cereals. And, and so instead of a healthy balanced breakfast that Kellogg became known for, it's like, we're going to just, we're going to do it as if like show why it's not a good thing that we give these things to kids now, but play with it in a funny way. All right. Well, uh, Tristan is the generous uh, host that chose this one um, for you guys to work with. Do you have any questions for him? I have a couple of questions here. Uh, I have a question for Joe because I know he's doing sort of like a direct parody of the original. So I have some quotes here from uh, John Voigt talking about the original movie. He said, Filming Day Great was like a spiritual experience. I saw God in Tony the Tiger. So are you going to have some jokes kind of referencing the religious uh, story going on here? And John Voight kind of found God on the set of this movie. And if you even had a priest come on set weekly and say a prayer with him every Sunday. So are you going to kind of 
in your meta kind of parody of the movie are you going to reference that at all yeah so one of the thing is the kellogg's in real life were hardcore seventh day adventists and so one of the like jokes in my movie that i'm kind of adding because like like i said airplane was for the most part a line by line remake of zero hour but there were some added jokes there is going to be a joke where the uh jesus statue breaks in their church and they don't really have anything else to replace it with except the tiger statue outside and so they put the tiger statue in place of the jesus statue and just pray to that for a while in the movie and so that's kind of the joke of that's where that parody joke comes in and that's where they get the inspiration for tony the tiger in my movie interesting because i have a similar question for bobby uh in the creation of the tony the tiger scene in the original is kind of one of the more silly scenes they're getting in this argument in the boardroom when they almost get in a fist fight over what color tony's uh mascot's going to be one guy wants to be red one guy wants to be blue so they get in this almost fist to cuffs argument and they get it broken up and the guy says oh they're fine they're both fine they're great they're great and the guy goes oh my god they're great and that's how i kind of come up with the, the line for they're great so I Tristan's a big fan of this movie I mean honestly it's just like I said with them coming up with these crazy things like they they think every single one of their creations is great so that's kind of they kind of the, the, their great part isn't the big thing but they're trying to come up with what mascot can really push this um and like they do kind of get into a bit of a fight and Seth Rogen lands on top of Dave Franco and his red beard like kind of red orange beers on top of him. And he's like, I got it. And it, cause it, it looks like a tiger. What it like show it, what, you know, the camera pans and it looks like his beard is a tiger. So it's like, it's a weird, funny scene that can happen in these type of stuff with Seth Rogen and that. So there you go. Yeah. Hey, those are my questions. Uh, I got some good insight on the pitches there from that. Uh, if Glad you guys anything else, help. I'm ready to yeah. argue about it. Yeah. I think Tristan covered every question that we might have. Um, so we'll give you guys your, your your time to fight it out. All right, so I think I go first. So my thing with like mine being more of a direct parody, I feel like with yours, especially with like the change in history, I feel like it might not work to the same level of like people understanding the joke of switching it. So they start with crappy or like unhealthy cereals, knowing they originally tried to start with healthy cereals. I don't know if that necessarily works with the real story not being that well known. And then my thing is too, I just don't know if like switching that and making that like the alternate history of your movie is like a big enough crux or a big enough draw to make it like that much more interesting other than just being like weird and not really making any sense and that's kind of my big main problem with your movie of it's just like i don't know if just oh like them like i get your allegory for like being drugs but it also it's not like they were connected to drugs or i just i just don't really understand how your movie is like is matters i guess that's what I'm trying to say. Like, I, I just don't understand what the, how the changing of your alternate history makes like that much interesting of a movie when the original story that self, not like that interesting. Right. Back to you, Bobby. You got one minute. So the zaniness of it really sells it, but you always get like Seth Rogen and, and, uh, and Goldberg, like they, they, they can put some themes into stuff and have it come out really well, especially lately. And what I'm getting at is, you you know that everyone now eats super unhealthy, so that will be part of the marketing. Is like, you know, what if we did essentially back to to start essentially in the early nineteen hundreds? Like, do it do it then like they do like we do it now, but then the rest of it is just zany craziness, and you get a, a lot of um, more of the fun comedic moments with definitely some allegories too, like the drugs and to 
sugar and to like unhealthiness. But uh, it's again, it's it's a lot more of just it's it sounds way more entertaining than a version of a straight up retelling of a movie that not a lot of people know and one that does like I don't I don't get the appeal and what humor is actually going to come across and actually appeal to everyone. Where mine at least has some a lot of broad comedy in it with Seth Rogen um, and uh, with Dave Franco uh, as well as um, uh, Jonah Hill. And I think they, they play in a lot more than your movie, especially with your director choice. Again, I, I think yours just plays as a weird retelling, straight up retelling of a movie. No one saw that it's going to have like maybe a couple like cracks of smiles, but it, I don't see it working as a full on like laugh out loud comedy, whereas the potential with the people that I cast and put in charge of it, I think I do see that. All right, Joe, you've got uh, two minutes to respond. I definitely want to hear your response to how to disappeal people who aren't familiar with the deep cut original. Like yours seems like a direct parody. So how do you justify that with the movie that in the title is forgotten? Uh, so like, uh, like I, I mean, I know I've been comparing, like doing the Zero Hour airplane reference a lot, but Zero Hour was not like a big famous movie. I feel like I more want the tone of like David Wayne's works, like Wet Hot American Summer, which has a following, and then like A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which was a movie I really liked a few years ago, and that's kind of the tone I want. And I feel like you have Steve Carell, Ed Helms, and uh, uh, what's his face. Uh, doing like these big zany over the top characters these two brothers like I said in the last like my last pitch for Bone Wars you have these two brothers or not two brothers two friends uh, like going to battle over each other with dinosaurs in the background this one is still like these two brothers being zany over the top uh, in a world about cereal and people know Frosted Flakes or you know like that cereal they like know that so there's at least that connection to it and I don't think it necessarily matters if the original movie and what they're parroting is super popular because they can still have biopic parody elements throughout their movie as well that everyone knows can I get clarification who is your director David Wayne oh David okay all right what did you think right. of Damon, you Damon Wayne yes oh you thought Damon Wayne says the director of my movie this whole time <laughs> <laughs> But I still have the same argument against it. I don't think that really works, but it's, it's again, like, yeah. All right. All right. Are we, um, yeah, that's, that's just Joe's two minutes there. If okay. you got any final questions or thoughts, Johnny? Uh, I get my, yeah, we got Bobby some minutes. Bobby's, but yeah, Bobby's got his last two minutes. Yep. All right. Again, I uh, I don't think a straight up retelling is going to have enough comedy. Like Airplane was a once in a lifetime kind of thing where that really worked, and it was a lot of like they cast the right people in it. They they it reinvigorated it. It started an entire career. Um, it was it was kind of a full. It, I, that, I don't see that working nowadays. Where you straight up remake a movie with the same dialogue, add maybe a couple jokes, and have it play as an actually full on straight up comedy. And people will will enjoy it because it wasn't written as a comedy in the first place. So you have to find that very rare script that works when you play it. You also have to play a lot of them play it straight. Uh, yours has a lot of zaniness and craziness. Like playing it straight can bring out the comedy in a weird situation that shouldn't, like maybe uh, you know shouldn't work or shouldn't like show show why the original was so bad or something there has to be a reason that you're doing a straight up retelling of the movie that's all i'm getting at it does i don't see that with this 
for mine at least, it is a comedy and it does take the basis of it and put it in a fun way. And it is more of it, it, it has the more potential to be to be funny and to be creative in the joke telling and creative with Seth, what Seth Rogen can do where yours is like, let's follow the same script. We might add a couple of little jokes here and there, but you're telling the same story exactly the same way. Mine at least changes it. And it's a clear change of history. You're going to get, they're going to market it that way so that you at least know that is what is going on in this show. Um, it's a short series of five, five episodes, 30 to 40 minute episodes it's you, you know it's not an hour long drama about these characters you're going to get to the point it's going to be funny you're going to get some fun scenes for five episodes and it's going to be a fun little watch little binge watch i think and yours just sounds like nothing to me i, I don't get any feeling from it all right it's harsh words right. from there bobby on the end uh you got any 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 thoughts johnny or questions i I disagree with Bobby on one thing, and that's I don't feel anything towards Joe movie. I actively hate Joe's movie. <laughs> he lost me at Ed Helms. Uh, he's the most unwatchable person in Hollywood, and I do not understand how he's famous. Ed Helms is awful. Um, and Steve Carell being over-the-top zany is also terrible. Steve Carell has shown that he is much stronger as a dramatic actor or playing the straight man with outrageous things happening around him. I think his worst roles are when he's trying to be a super comedic and stuff, look at dinner for schmucks. I don't like him in Anchorman. I don't like his roles when he is those kind of characters. So I, uh, Joe lost me at Ed Helms and continued to lose me with the rest of his pitch. So I'm going to go with Bobby. That sounds like something I'd actually check out. Um, Seth Rogen shown that he can be Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg have shown that they can be really solid showrunners and, and produce some really good stuff. Um, I mean, just look at, you know, they, they had a big hand in Invincible, and that's one of the best shows that have come out in a while. So I'm going to go with Bobby on that one, uh, just based on strength of cast and uh, directing and everything like that. I think Bobby actually made it something watchable, and Joe would be a movie that, like, the remake of Vacation that no one cares about, and it is just bad. I'm leaning towards the same uh, opinion as Johnny. I think especially Joe's cast is what hurt him. I love the David Wayne choice. I think What Had American Summer is hilarious, and I think both of those TV shows, spinoff things, have been really good too. But I just don't necessarily think the cast that you picked are the ones that I think would work great in the premise. I I don't think either one of them perform well when they're doing like their high-energy, loud kind of stuff. I think both of them get like annoying and shrill really quickly when they do that kind of performance. So I unfortunately think the cast kind of heard it for me because when i think of the movie i just think of the cast trying to perform that way and it would just grind at me so i'm going towards bobby here i think the miniseries is an interesting choice i think you guys both went for comedy but i think the miniseries tends to lean towards like all these crime thrillers or these slow burning mysteries and i think the idea of like a the spinge through it one season comedy is a really cool idea for a miniseries and i think the twist of well what if they had these gross fat sugary uh Stereos back in the day and it could be some commentary on consumerism commentary on all that kind of stuff and i think that bobby's has a lot of more potential to be funny than joe's does so i'm leaning towards bobby and i think that gives bobby the win we're on the last it does squeezing towards for the win after joe was on our run for so long down oh two that that yeah, last that one that, that they're great is like the one i had like no approach for at all i that one i think i wrote that pitch like Sunday or no I wrote that pitch Monday night 
because I'm like I have to write something because I have no angle, no option. I had no idea what to even do for that movie. It took me a while. I think I finished that one at about four o'clock today. So, <laughs> well, I liked you guys' answers to the questions. I'm glad that you guys both had answers for those, and surprisingly, were able to get some fun. I'm glad neither of you went for like, oh, we're doing an actual like biopic about these people. Oh no, because I read be was... I read their Wikipedia page, and I'm like, these people are fucking crazy. This is definitely going to be a comedy. Yeah, I feel like that you could have gone a couple directions. You could have went. I think you could have went, I mean, I like the way Bobby went because I wouldn't have seen that coming really. And I, I like that as like kind of a nice surprise. Joe, I think it had the right idea, but just the, had like casting that really hurt. I spent so um, long trying to find a sitcom that basically had like three people I thought could like believably play these roles. And I was eventually, I got to the point where I'm like, fuck it. I'll just pick these three. Cause I'm not finding anything. Right. I so, tried to and, do the cast of too, Wet Hot American Summer, but y'all wouldn't let me. You said it didn't count as a sitcom. <laughs> I, I think you could have done a really dark version of this movie um, and made it about very unlikable characters. And honestly, you could have done something like this as a PTA movie um, with just like, you know, you don't need likable characters no. or people that you're rooting for to make an interesting watch and paul thomas anderson's done that with the master and i um you know there will be blood and things like that so i think you yeah, could have had the center of this be a really dark evil character and done done something like that um but you both went for the for the comedic angle if i were joe i wouldn't have worried too much about the cast matching the original people because i feel like so much of the appeal of what hot american summer is like these cast do not match these That's characters true. at all any yeah like, they're old you could have thrown anybody <laughs> yeah. and made that part of the joke you know but it was a squeeze. It was a close one for the yeah. last battle. I was surprised that you guys both ended up getting some good stuff out of there. Great. Yeah. Yeah, you guys had some good uh, good arguments. So real quick before we end it, we'll just go around the table and say, uh, what was your favorite pitch from uh, Bobby? What was your favorite pitch of Joe's? Joe, was what, we, what was your favorite pitch of Bobby? Or hardest one to fight against. Yeah. So as much as I, I shit on it, as I was talking, well, I actually barely got to say anything of mine, but I said it was boring. <laughs> Um, the, his bone <laughs> war sounded awesome. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really, really love that. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be able to fight this with my ridiculous pitch. So that was, I mean, we didn't even get to fight it, but I just loved the sound of that one. Um, and I would watch that miniseries any day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For me, uh, I, like I talk shit that it wasn't a whole lot and I still don't know how much it like fits the book, but I would say I, I would definitely watch his uh, version of Cryptid Hunters of like the Jim Henson kind of labyrinth type feel. I feel like that'd be pretty entertaining. Yeah. If not that, I, I, as much as I didn't really understand his Metroid pitch, if I were to watch an anime movie, that definitely seems like one I would check out. I just didn't understand it, and that was my big defense or attack against this. I feel like <laughs> if you don't know shit about Metroid, I don't yeah. think you get his movie. So. Yeah, I think it's more of a straightforward plot if you've ever actually played the game and, like, not even just knowing the story, but, like, I got what Bobby's plot is because I played it, but the actual story of the game is not very complicated. Um, okay. Bobby just went maybe a little too detailed uh, in the description of it, um, but we'll not quite away. as much as I did with, uh, what was it, in the championship match. Um, oh, yeah. Um, cool. The Gardner. Gardner. <laughs> Yeah, so Bobby almost fell a little bit into that trap of just like you know more about it, so you want to put more detail in, but didn't quite go 
too far enough where even he lost interest by the end of the, the pitch. Um, but the uh, my favorite pitch of the day was Joe's Bone Wars. I really liked that. I was hoping for like a serious take on it, and I thought that was perfect for like a mini series. But my most surprising pitch, like I I said, Joe's didn't win me over, but like Bobby actually, I think had as good of a pitch as you could have done with something I wouldn't have expected from a mini series of they're great. When I saw that was the last Wooly had, and I was like, how the hell is he going to make this work? And I, I liked the idea of them being like basically selling sugar like drugs to to kids and stuff. I think that could be a, an interesting uh, plot around something. So I like I like that pitch too from from Bobby. Um, Tristan, what about you? I was a big fan of Bobby's Cryptid Hunters pitch. I think they both had good Cryptid Hunters pitches, but I think Bobby really was able to get into the into the, like the potential and have all these cool creatures. And even without a ton of idea of the plot, I just feel like with the Jim Henson connection and some of the visual ideas, I just got like a chill out and vibe kind of like a movie I throw it on Disney Plus and watch in the afternoon sometime. And I think Joe had an interesting uphill battle with his rule of choice on that one. And I think he did a really good job fighting for it. So I think I was very much impressed by that pitch, even though he didn't win I'm on that proud one. that I went from in the, like I knew as soon as I said Paul Thomas Anderson that you guys were going to be like out. And I'm like, if I can battle my way back and make you guys understand how this is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I'll be in mm-hmm. good shape. And I feel like I, even though I lost that pitch, I feel like I still succeeded in that aspect. And so I'm, proud of yeah, that one for sure i i agree with that because i thought it was like right away I, I had that one and then i'm like you're actually making really good points about this one so i have to fight for mine i want to send a shout out to the person that wrote the amazon review otherwise i would have no idea what the fuck that book was about so. <laughs> <laughs> all right um well with that being said i think we're uh we're done here today uh it was it was a fun match we got Hopefully next week, but I know everyone's schedule's been crazy. My schedule's been really crazy. Not exactly the easiest time to work in restaurants right now. No. Um, hopefully people come back to work soon, and we'll see if that happens. But it's hard to find people, so I'm doing about 60 to 70 hours a week uh, of basically hard labor. So that's exciting. Um, but when we have time to find uh, episodes, uh, hopefully next week we plan on Tristan versus Joe if we have to throw something together last minute or, you know, do something else, you might get a different episode, but um, we'll always try to put something out every week. If we can, if not all of us are involved, check out Tristan and Joe's Disney plus reviews. Um, if ever yeah, Bobby and I can, and can appear on those, we will. Um, I like uh, all the stuff. We're just kind of producing as much content and check us out on TikTok and Instagram and all the social media platforms at movie change up. Um, I just released on Letterboxd. If you find me uh, on there, uh, I ranked all the James Bond movies, um, and I'm going to be putting out more fun rankings and stuff like that soon. Um, anyone have anything like else to kind of plug yeah, or mention yeah. before we go? Yeah, I just want to say uh, two things real quick. We got a, Paul commented that they're a fan of our kind of new updated format. Didn't really make the episode shorter because we're still at two hours and 26 minutes, but if this episode wasn't so close, I think – we went into the final pitch at just under two hours. It was like an hour, hour 59, so I think we're on the right track. And also I want to add that this episode and all of our main episodes will premiere on YouTube at 7 o'clock on Fridays and will debut on podcast form 7 o'clock on Fridays. And then I usually try to have our uh, Disney Plus reviews premiere live on YouTube at noon on Saturdays or 7 on Saturdays if we have to tape later than noon. So. I will add that. 
Uh, just to be clear, 7 p.m. Eastern? Yeah, 7 p.m. Okay. Eastern. Uh, this show will premiere on YouTube. Cool. Because I, I wasn't sure. So, yeah. And all of our other main shows. So anytime we do, you know, a Hall of Fame or a Mount Rushmore or another regular movie change-up show, we'll always premiere Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. Just for more consistency. So that's all I have. Hell yeah. All right. Um, well... Thank you, everyone, for, for showing up. Uh, Johnny Sucks is still a bad take, and I'm the champion. Screw all of you. Goodbye. <laughs>